Dracula saga is the story of a cursed family. My own family. When my grandfather invited me to his castle in the Carpathian Mountains, I found a strange family. The tombs at the cemetery. The cemetery? Why? Are you referring to that bell? I'm referring to the gravestones of my grandfather and cousins as though they were interred there. Delightful during the day. And horrible at night, when the most terrifying events took place. If you really find yourselves in trouble... We beg of you. The Dracula Saga. What happened to my husband is all I want to know. Can you hear? I felt walled in by the invisible bonds of these beings, whose true nature I was beginning to discover. My grandfather, his new wife, my cousins, the little monster Valerio, and my own husband. Until at last I realized that I was trapped, a prisoner among vampires. The Dracula saga is the story of my fight against them, and how I had to attack them and destroy them with my own hands. It was an uneven fight. I was fighting beings who appeared to be alive, but however, were dead. Evil flooded Tepes, Count Dracula. It's grandfather. The Dracula saga. This is my story. A strange, incredible story. I can't tell you the ending. And when you see it, don't you divulge it either. A sacrifice, blessing, or bestiality. The curse of the devil. Satan in control of the body and the mind. My love will destroy the creation. I swear that you'll find Hello and welcome to the Nashicast. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. And tonight is episode Beyond Nashi number 28. Yes, another one in our series of subset podcasts within the Nashicast about films that Paul Nashi is not involved in. But tonight's film does have a whole lot of people who were in a lot of Nashi uh, films. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, like five or six? Yeah, at least. And it's just amazing how many yeah, I guess we could faces do a, turn up here. We could do a count. Yeah, we'll have to yeah, keep tally. It's, it's at least five. Yeah, yeah. 
when when you get to a heavily bearded uh, Bible selling Louis Sidges, you know <laughs> you know they're they're going deep. And almost like an unrecognizable Louis Sidges. In fact, had I not seen his name in the credits, I don't know that I ever would have recognized him as being the. <laughs> but then once you know, once you realize that's him, yeah, then it's then, then unmistakable like, nose. Oh, well, and all yeah, that exactly. <laughs> I mean, that, that's a huge beard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> as the Bible salesman who gets vamped in the woods. Mm-hmm. Yes, in in the scene that should be day for night. Yeah. Uh, folks, this is uh, uh, the film we're covering tonight is The Dracula Saga, by uh, directed by Leon Klamowski, who is yet another mm-hmm. part of the mm-hmm. entire world of uh, Paul Nashi. This is a 1973 film, which uh, means that it was made at the height of the Spanish golden era boom, mm-hmm. uh, right in the sweet little pocket mm-hmm. when uh, Klamowski and Carlos Allred and Paul Nashi were turning out some of the best films that they uh, would make in the genre. As well as uh, the Blind Dead films were going yeah. strong at that point as well. Yep. So it's just a really beautiful time for uh, this kind of cinema. And the Dracula saga fits right in that pocket. It's in the right right time period. It's uh, it's it's one crime, I would say, is that uh, it certainly does not have a big-name horror actor in it. So mm-hmm. it doesn't have the big boogeyman of uh, the Blind Dead, and it doesn't have Paul Nashi, who by 73 was become, mm-hmm. you know, had become... Right. Uh, uh, an international horror star, mm-hmm. so um, that it's got it probably had that working against it to it to a certain degree. But what's working against it for you seeing it right now is that uh, it's uh, it's out of print on DVD. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yes, it is. Unfortunately, uh, this, this yeah, this is one of the films that got released by uh, BCI uh, years ago. I mean, good lord, what twelve, mm, yeah. twelve mm, yeah. or so years ago now, if not more. Uh, on DVD, it was a standalone uh, in that it was not a film that they could uh, find a way to pair with one of the Nashi films for whatever reason. I don't know why, mm-hmm. but it was released as a standalone, and it has a few extras on it. But it is uh, it's very pricey if you go to try to track down the mm-hmm. BCI Demos Blue. Uh, I'm sorry, DVD of the Dracula Saga. You're gonna pay mm-hmm. uh, basically about forty some odd bucks for it. And uh, I just keep thinking with well, a film of this type, surely that eventually it will get issued on Blu-ray somewhere. But I have not mm. discovered that mm-hmm. it's been issued on Blu-ray no. anywhere as of yet. No, but but yeah, but we're. Uh, I, I know you're the same way as any any time you mention Klamowski and vampires in the same breath. That's always you always know there's going to be something interesting going on there because it's one of the things that Klamowski uh, in the vampire films that he did, which I believe I guess overall. There was three or four that he that he did. Uh, well, I guess if you count Werewolf Shadow, Which, as, yeah. as, it certainly has vampires, but then he did Strange Loves of the Vampires and uh, Vampires Night Orgy. Yeah. And this, it was always he always brought some some fascinating ideas and some different ways that he liked to depict them. I think he was fascinated by the creature and, and liked to think of different ways to dis- show their powers and and, that, and depict them, I think. so. Well, that's one of the, the neat things to me about the vampire mythologies around the world is that they're... They're very malleable, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of different tacks that you can take when you start talking about vampirism on screen. And I think that this film tips its hand in a couple of different directions. It, it's very clearly pulling influence and, and uh, inspiration from various and sundry places around uh, around the world. Uh, mm-hmm. First of all, they, they tip their hand with the idea of uh, introducing uh, the Lamia as a concept. Mm-hmm. Within this story, uh, as our as our uh, main uh, main characters get to uh, this small village out in the middle of nowhere that's near Dracula's castle, and uh, the stable stable hand is is babbling about uh, lamias, mm-hmm. and so if you if you look into what uh, the lamias are, these seductive demons mm-hmm. uh, who uh, you know seduce and then kill. Um, 
merging that with the the typical bloodsucker mythology mm-hmm. is, ne- is is something that's been done repeatedly mm-hmm. throughout uh, not just cinema history but in books as well. And so they're pull, they're pulling that in. Also, this movie very clearly is drawing direct inspiration. As a matter of fact, there's specific plot points and and place names that are pulled straight out of Bram Stoker's Dracula novel. Mm-hmm. We've got Borgo Pass. Mm-hmm. We've got a you know we got a whole lot of di- you know we got a whole lot of different situations that come straight out of the novel. And I, to the point where I kept waiting for someone to sit down and be writing a not writing a letter <laughs> to someone, but yeah. They, they, yeah. <laughs> they never quite do that. <laughs> So um, there's a, a real joy in watching what they do in this by picking and choosing and trying different little pieces of different types of vampire mythology from around the world and kind of combining them. And I will say that most of the stuff that they're pulling from is very European in nature. It's not as if they're you know seeking out some kind of legend from mm-hmm. Japan or from right. or from Egypt or any place mm-hmm. else in the world. They're they're definitely pulling from European backgrounds, but there are so many different types of bloodsuckers, or I should say bloodsucker mythologies or or ideas uh, that they have a tendency to, uh, you know, different regions had different takes on this, and there's a there's a playing around with some of that within the structure of this. Now, the guy who wrote this, uh, wrote the screenplay for this, is not Klamovsky. It's a fellow by the name of Emilio Martinez Larazzo. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've, uh, I've noticed he, he was a director and a writer, uh, primarily a screenwriter around this time, but he did direct a lot of things after the fact. He, he, he was doing things like Diary of a Murderess and things of this nature, but he also contributed to the, uh, the uh, very strange little uh, horror anthology film, which is very difficult to come by. Uh, which is variously translated as a uh, cake of blood or blood cake or even mm. blood pie. It's uh, I know I know that's weird. Pastel de sangre. Mm. Uh, it was an anthology horror film. Difficult to get your hands on. I've seen a really crappy looking fan subbed print years ago. But he did a segment in that called Victor Frankenstein. Okay. Uh, which, oh, by the way, actually, uh, that's uh, the, this particular movie, this anthology film, also uh, sported appearances by a couple of the actors in this movie. So, okay, right, cool, uh, it's cool. it's you know it's a big in, in, incestuous thing. Now, uh, pa- um, Pastel de Sangre came out in 1971. This is two years later, so it's clear that he had a certain take on uh, the classic monsters. He's doing a Victor mm-hmm. Frankenstein story mm-hmm. in that earlier film. He's doing a Dracula story in this. And I think that uh, his uh, not 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 to be mean spirited because uh, I'm trying not to be mean spirited because I do like what he's done here, but his literary pretensions I think mm. show through yeah. in that he seems to always be trying to draw from the original source material when he's going back to these stories. If you've never seen Pastel de Sangre, like I say, it's very difficult to see. Uh, if I can find a print of it, yeah. it's something that we. If I can find a decent print of it, right. it would be something that I would love to cover in yeah. a future podcast. Sure, be, just to draw some attention no, to it. Like I'd like to see it. Yeah, would. But I don't even think there's a, a yeah, decent print of it available. Worth, yeah. I don't know yeah. that there's a way to see it that you know would, yeah. would not involve you know you know <laughs> lur- lur- lurking lurking in dark places on the internet <laughs> and, and offering up uh, you know vials of white powder to people who you probably don't want to know very well. <laughs> I always love it when uh, a screenplay, an original screenplay, mm-hmm. pulls from you know often ignored source material mm-hmm. to try to to try to weave a new kind of cinematic version of these things. And I think that this film certainly fits in that category. Mm-hmm. Um, I will say this, and I want I want to let Troy know this before because I know the question's coming one way or the other. I would rather not spoil the end of this movie because okay. of how difficult it is to see. Okay, uh, I Sounds don't good. want I don't want to give the I, I want to give people the chance to listen to us talk about this movie mm-hmm. and hopefully. 
send them out to look for it with some curiosity mm. without us having given away what I consider to be the, the final act. Uh, there's like a two or three pieces of information I mm. definitely don't want to give away because mm-hmm. I think the end of the movie is the strongest part of it and I think mm. that it really kind of resets mm. most of what you've seen and it not only explains certain things but it also really kind of makes you appreciate some of the things that they've dangled out there mm. as breadcrumbs along the way. Yeah. So... We won't be spoiling uh, the Dracula saga. We will be uh, going, uh, I'd say we'll be going Mm. at least an hour into the story. If not, just a little bit past Mm. an hour. Mm. Just to let let you know at the front that we're not going to ruin this movie for you. So uh, we understand if you have seen it, you might want us to talk a whole lot about the end of that. Maybe we'll do Mm. something uh, later on where we... Uh, do like a separate little mini episode. Yeah. We just talk about let's 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 like drill into the end of this. But right. I do want to give people the opportunity to know about this film and be able to seek mm-hmm. it out without us mm-hmm. having uh, given away mm-hmm. the juicy bits at the end. Gotcha, makes sense to me. So, uh, with that, uh, Troy, what uh, anything anything odd or out of the ordinary been going on? It's weird that you're wearing a football T-shirt. I got to tell you that. Yeah, well, you know I'm a football. Well, not that. It's just it's the summer. Yeah, you well, yeah, that's true. Well, it's it's this is just my dormant dormant till I just see the summer as the dormant time till till football begins again. And uh, <laughs> well, I don't know. Did you ever play football? I did not actually. Well, I did. I played a lot of front yard football. You know, oh, okay. with kids around the neighborhood. You know, but uh, no, I couldn't stand. I couldn't stand your typical school coach. You know, and also I, I played. I played football. In I remember. School. I knew that you and did. I, yeah. And I got to tell you, what the summer and football always conjures in my mind are god awful two a day practices. Yeah. So two a days are hell on earth yeah especially back in those days where there weren't even any like you know at that time there probably wasn't even still any kind of rules and regulations about how much you know I mean I don't think they're even oh, well, I don't you know, probably had the coaches who were kind of like you know well they didn't want to no kill us no water for you suck it up no water they, for you they didn't want to kill us they knew that, they, they knew that, that would be bad but, <laughs> yeah. but, but it wasn't pleasant there was that summer that hideous hideous summer where uh, I can't even remember what year it was and I've, I've tried to black some of it out just so I don't have to think about it too hard but there was a hideous summer playing football and doing two-a-days in the summer for those two weeks that we did that mm-hmm. where we were also during the middle of the day it's not like we could just go home and collapse and rest no i had to uh, also go out my father my father had uh, just bought the family farm he grew up on and so we were ripping out fence wow. rows and replacing them so <laughs> i'd get gosh. up go do two hours of football practice in the morning yeah. and then in the heat of the day <sighs> help dad on the yeah. farm with Replacing all these fence rows, which is something that I just, I'm sorry, I was not born to do. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then collapse for a couple of hours before having to be back and do the two hours at the end of the day. Wow. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, I think the word is unpleasant. But that was seeing you in, yeah. in this kind of weather and this kind of, in this time of year wearing a football t shirt, I just, I don't know, I don't know if it's, I'm, I'm, I'm having, you know, Horrible flashbacks or some kind of post-traumatic stress syndrome. <laughs> it's just all I can think of. It's, it's probably it's probably a football shirt I probably shouldn't be wearing because it's probably worth some money. So, you know, it's it's uh, you know even the course of now it's got all my hole, holes in it and stuff from but <laughs> Peyton Manning, Peyton Manning in a Colts you know Peyton Manning in a Colts uniform there you know it's like, of course oh, of course now he's not in any uniform at all but but uh, yeah well Peyton Manning. <laughs> Yeah, go sell some pizza, you asshole. <laughs> well, folks, uh, Troy and I will take a brief break, and then we will come back and we will uh, start talking a fair amount, probably too much, mm. about the Dracula saga. I am Dr. Lee Cushing. Welcome to my Chamber of Horrors. Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors is a serialized monster rally novel in the tradition of the classic Universal and Hammer horror films. 
It's written by Stephen D. Sullivan, the award-winning author of White Zombie, Daikaiju Attack, Manos, The Hands of Fate, and the original chill role-playing game. My goal is to recreate the thrills of the monster versus monster films that we all love. We'll have vampires, werewolves, mummies, psychic twins, and scheming madmen. And that's just in the first storyline. Now you can get Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors and other monster stories sent directly to your email for as little as a dollar a month. For just two dollars, you'll get all the chapters in advance, plus bonus stories and other perks. Sign up now at CushingHorrors.com or visit SDSullivan.com for a Patreon link. I do hope you've enjoyed your visit. Please come again and remember, the chamber is always waiting for its next victim. The following is a message from the American Podcast Council. We need your help. Podcastophobia strikes four out of five Americans every day, and chances are that someone you love or could love given time is currently suffering from this devastating affliction. But it doesn't have to be that way. For zero dollars a day, you can help. Please, make some time today to let just one person know about a favorite podcast of yours. It can be this one, but it doesn't have to be. But it probably should be, but seriously, no pressure. And show them where to find it and how to download, play, and subscribe to it. And tell us what you recommended. Use the hashtag tripod. That's T-R-Y pod. Thank you for speaking out. And thank you for listening. The old line of the Draculas was at the point of becoming extinct. The Draculas were considered, even at that time, as being strange people. And those living nearby suspected them of possessing powers and customs that no one would dare name. I inherited this feared name and from me, the whole world learned of the terror and respect that vampires still inspire. This was made possible when I, the Count, invited my granddaughter to the castle. She who had been born far from our family. She was a girl named Berta. The Dracula Saga, 1973, directed by Leon Klamovsky. Um, we should probably talk a little bit about Leon Klamovsky before mm-hmm. we get started, because Argentinian-born mm-hmm. Spanish filmmaker, which mm-hmm. may sound odd, but there are more people from Argentina. Mm-hmm. Uh, is it Argentine? No, that's... Argentinians. Ar- <laughs> it's Argentinians. There are a lot of Argentinians. Yeah. A lot of people from Argentina. <laughs> who migrated... Who migrated into the Spanish cinema world. Uh, <laughs> Argentina. There, I finally said the name of the country go. correctly so that I don't sound like the moron that I feel that I am. <laughs> He's not the only person who moved to Spain from mm. that country to become a filmmaker. Mm. Uh, he is the uh, the director, I think, with uh, at least within the Spanish horror genre mm. that I love to point to and go, wow, that's, that's kind of odd. But yeah, mm. he was born in Argentina in 1906, and uh, he was going to be a dentist early in life. Uh, matter of fact, he trained to be a dentist. And then, uh, you know, he likes movies. So mm-hmm. he decided to go yeah. into movies, and he, he did that hard that hard slog of actually doing it. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, made you know uh, he was uh, writing as well as directing a number of short movies and stuff like that. 
it's weird because apparently he gained international recognition for an anti-drug film, including one called Marijuana in 1950. <laughs> and I just keep thinking to myself, I wonder if that's as crazed as, as Reefer Madness. <laughs> yeah, right. I have no way to see it. But it was. But this Marijuana film uh, was nominated in, uh, in the 1951 Cannes Film Fest- Festival, so it must have been well-received then. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> He got his start working in crews doing uh, Spanish... Uh, I mean, I mean, uh, Spanish crews who were working on Italian westerns and mm-hmm. at the beginning of the uh, Spanish western boom. This was actually in the few years just before Sergio Leone came along, and then suddenly everything mm-hmm. just exploded. Yeah. Um, they were still, you know, there were there were a number of uh, westerns, Italian westerns, being made primarily in Spain because that's where the that's mm-hmm. that that was an area of Europe that actually looked a whole lot like the American West. And uh, he was involved in a few of those in the early '60s, and then actually directed a few of them in the '60s after the boom started. But he directed mostly, he directed a lot of comedies and all kinds of things like that. And then, kind of fell. He, he did some, he did some combat films as well in the late '60s. But then, in the early '70s, he was hired to direct a, a little horror picture for someone named Paul Nashi. Ah, uh, yeah, it might, may have heard of it. So Klamowski uh, had some had uh, a little bit of success with those mm. films, uh, including you know of course. Um, Werewolf Shadow, aka mm-hmm. Werewolf yeah. and the Vampire Women, which was a humongous hit. And after that, they did uh, Jekyll and Doctor Jekyll and the Wolfman, and uh, then he directed several other films for Nash, including uh, the Vengeance of the Zombies. Yeah. Those films gave him the opportunity to direct other horror films, so he ended up making this movie, as well as uh, Vampires Night Orgy. Vampires Night Orgy. Oh, man, <laughs> I look at the Spanish version of the title, and I can't rearrange the words uh-huh. fast enough. But I think it's funny that essentially Paul Nashie was just trying desperately to find a director he could count on yeah, <laughs> at that yeah. point in his career because he'd had uh, he'd had a couple of pieces of really bad luck where he had uh, directors that pulled out of a project like apparently Assignment Terror was a nightmare trying to keep that that thing afloat yeah. because of the director <clears throat> that was turned and then of course with Fury of the Wolfman of course he was working with a director who was perpetually <laughs> drunk and so Fury of the Wolfman has always been mm. is this giant mess because the director was a giant mess so I'm sure that finding mm. Leon Klamowski was like a, 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 a draft of cool air in a very hot room. He was very thrilled to actually have someone come along who he could mm-hmm. count on to actually get the film done yeah. without being a flake or fucking it up. And I, I didn't notice if you if you uh, mentioned these, but also he directed uh, with Nashia the people in the dark. Oh yeah, that, and, that was that was their last film together. Great yeah. movie. Yeah. And then uh, Dragonfly for each corpse did as yep. well. With so uh, only sad things. I was excited to watch this movie. I had not seen it before, and uh, I, one of the but there was also a little bit of sadness too because when I looked over the filmography, as far as I can tell, I think I have seen all of Klamowski's what you would call horror films. You know, I certainly yeah. he has plenty of other things in his filmography I'd like to see, but I believe that was the last one, and so I guess a little bit of sadness that I've kind of run through them all now. I always kind of wish there was one more, you know, that I still had to get to, <laughs> but you know how that feeling is there. But uh, yeah, but. it's it's. He he definitely left his mark on uh, Spanish, not just Spanish horror film. I'd say mm. European horror cinema in general, simply because mm. of the collaboration with Paul Nashi, which, like I say, allowed him to do um, you know more than just the movies with Nashi. And of course, spun off from the relationship with Nashi was uh, the the four, or the four films. You kind of have to connect the four films. Carlos Ared, 
um, made with mm-hmm. Nashi as well because Allred started as Klamowski's uh, assistant. Yeah. And um, mainly started directing films mainly because Klamowski was too busy yeah. and couldn't direct Horror Rises from the Tomb at the time that uh, Nashi wanted to make it. And one of the things we'll see as we go through this film is how much of Horror Rises from the Tomb's cast is also in this film. You would almost, if you didn't know, you'd, you would think, well, they must have been the same director, but I'm sure it was a case of them both using the same, knowing the same yeah. people, and probably even recommending to each other the same people and, and that sort of thing. So, Well, I think uh, that there was a, a pretty tight little group of actors there who, well, let, 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 let's, let's put it plainly. There's always been a sneaking suspicion that when you see an actor show up again and again in, in mm-hmm. movies during this period in Spanish mm-hmm. horror cinema... Mm-hmm. The thing that now clicks immediately into my mind is the suspicion that they were trustworthy. Yeah, yeah. In other right. words, you could sure. count on these people. They had yeah, a work yeah. ethic. They'd yeah. show up. They'd do, exi- they'd do the job. They'd do it as well as they could do it. And you didn't have to question them or find a way to work around them mm-hmm. or replace them mm-hmm. during production or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So you see, the, you see these actors and actresses who turn up in a lot of these movies mm-hmm. and you realize, well, not only, did, not only were they capable and could do the job... But the directors and the producers could trust them, and I think that that's true of a lot of these a lot of these people, because then you start hearing you know behind the scenes stories, and you realize that sometimes actors and actresses would go, oh well, you've you're, you've signed this person, this person's going to actually play my sister in this movie. Oh well, no, 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 I'll, I'll, yeah, yeah, sure, I'll be glad to do that, because then they realize they've got an ally, someone yeah. they can trust on the production as well, and so there's a willingness to go ahead and, and take a step into something that. You know, maybe they haven't even been able to read the script for, but they know yeah. they know the director and they know at least one of the actors. So they've got they've got a foot in the door to to, to say, okay, I know at least two people who aren't stupid and are going to screw <laughs> screw this thing up. Well, and and uh, you know, particularly when you're making genre films, you also have taken into consideration you want people that you know will sell it. You know, people yeah. that you know will like commit to the role and 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 kind of try and and help suspend the audience's disbelief by taking their role seriously, no matter how outlandish. The story might be, and also actors who will do some of the things they're called upon to do in genre films, like lying naked in a coffin when it's like sub-zero <laughs> temperatures, or there's something like that. You know, well, there there is that. <laughs> and don't 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 ever neglect the simple fact that uh, most of the female cast of this film do do bear their breasts mm. at some point in mm. in, in the narrative. Um, the the uh, BCI Demos DVD that uh, we're working with here, of course, the out of print DVD. Uh, one of the extras is uh, the uh, the scenes that have nudity in them. Mm. They show us the clothed versions because, of course, this was still during the period of time in Spanish uh, history where for Spanish audiences, you would have to film any scenes with nudity to be shown in Spain with a variant version that would have the actress or actor, actor or actress covered up to uh, therefore take some of the joy out of some of these films <laughs> because... Those, I, I, I'll admit, this one, this film uses it very well. There are a number of points in this movie where the nudity is a shock. Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a blast of cold water in your face, just mm-hmm. right, just mm-hmm. a surprise. It really yeah. is a surprise, and um, I think that losing that amount, I have to say, if if there were a way to watch the film, if there was like a branching way to watch mm-hmm. the film with the closed pieces mm-hmm. inserted into the film instead of the the nude version all the way through. Um, it would suck some of the uh, some of the, the vitality out of the mm-hmm. film in a certain way because those those moments are put in the film to kind of shock. Mm-hmm. They're they're there to you know pop your eyes open and, and set you back and, and kind of drive home certain elements within the story and also to kind of 
honestly push things along in, in, in a weird way. In other words, it's a, it's a, it's almost a way of the filmmakers trying emphasizing the uh, hey we're serious portion of things. We're not yeah. we're not playing around here. Right. Uh, you you know you you may think that the idea of vampires is silly, but you know we're we're actually putting you know new people and Tony Isbear is nude in the film yep. as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, ladies get a, a nice shot of his behind, <laughs> and so there's a, a certain uh, shock of that kind of thing that it, I think would be sorely missed in just being able to see the clothed yeah. version. And I think that's one of the complaints I've always had about um, the uh, the Nashy film Crimson. Mm-hmm. Which is the primary way that you can see that, or at least the primary way I've ever seen it, mm-hmm. is uh, the clothed version, uh, not the nude version. I've always seen it where the you, if you want to see the nude uh, scenes in that movie, mm-hmm. you would have to see them as a separate extra, as yeah. uh, was done on the uh, initial DVD, and I think has been done on the Blu-ray as yeah. well. Oh yeah, the Blu-ray's got all the all the nude nudity, and it was considerable actually. Uh, yeah, 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 and and not having those bits in there do, do change. Not having those bits mm-hmm. does really change the way that things feel mm-hmm. as par- as the narrative advances along because there's a there's a certain uh, sharpness that that brings to the Im- mm-hmm. not just the, the images but also the the seriousness of the nature of what you're watching. Well, let me put it this way: Do you feel before we get into a discussion mm-hmm. of the plot, mm-hmm. do you feel this movie fits comfortably within? The Spanish horror boom that it was really a part of. Does it feel like a film that was um, kind of naturally a part of that period of Spanish horror? Does it feel slightly uh, slightly separate from it in a way, or how, how do you feel it? Just look, you know, looking back yeah. on it now. Um, I think I, I I would put it slightly apart in just the sense that for all of its setting and the fact that it has multiple vampires and it's in a you know big mansion, and I I think that it doesn't quite have as much overt gothic atmosphere as some of the other films that were coming out in that same year as what we associate with Spanish horror. You know, there's not, yes, we have cemeteries and we have, you know, ladies going around in gowns and all this stuff, but there's not as much fog, dark lighting. A lot of it's more brightly lit and, and uh, kind of filmed a little more naturalistic without too much, not as much atmosphere, I think, not as much emphasis own atmosphere. Um, so I think it, I'm not saying it it, 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 it could fit within it, but I think that there are things that kind of set it apart you know, that kind of make it a little different from maybe the, especially considering that year, 73, and the other things that were coming out in Spain at that time. I agree with you that this film doesn't have as much gothic atmosphere mm. as I initially thought that it was going to have because, yeah, yeah the, the. It's got some, but just not as extreme as what yeah. we kind of came to expect. With. Uh, I mean, it's, it's definitely got a period setting. We're yeah, talking, yeah. you know, um, what? Early 1900s, late 1800s, somewhere around in there. Yeah. They're never, they're, I don't think they're very specific at right. any point. But the. Uh, the the most of the film takes place in uh, Castle Dracula mm-hmm. near the Borgo Pass, of which, is, which is a nice little nice little rip from the, uh, well, the we even no- get, novel. We even get the old um, trope of the you know the the carriage and horse and driver who won't go past a certain point you know to <laughs> to carry our. Our, our intrepid passengers there. So, <laughs> uh, well, you know, now that you brought it up, let's let's go ahead and get let's go ahead and get started. Let's get into the. Uh... Yeah. I'll, I'll rattle. That's I'll, the plot rattling. I'll rattle paper. Yeah, I'll rattle yeah, paper. Yeah. Let's go ahead and talk about a few things before we get started. I would like to say that um, the film has a voiceover that uh, occurs at the beginning and then wraps the film mm-hmm. up. Mm-hmm. I do I do like the uh, the voiceover in the English version. It's the uh, it's it, 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 you're never in any under any um, illusion that the person doing the voiceover is Dracula himself. Mm-hmm. It, it makes it very clear. And uh, in the voiceover at the beginning of the film, we're we're told that the, the the Dracula line, the lineage, 
is soon to be extinct and that uh, the there's this granddaughter who moved away from Castle Dracula and has been called back, a woman named Berta, who's uh, married and is with child, and that she is the hope of uh, the, 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 Dracula, the Dracula family to continue the, the, the family line. Mm-hmm. And... Um, Oh, one thing I would like to point out is that, uh, first of all, this is a pro films production, which yeah. means it was part of the, the whole Victory Films uh, production company that Klamowski and Nashi were all uh, were all a part of. This is uh, this is definitely, like I say, this is part of that whole period when uh, they were firing great guns and making making hit after hit there for a long period of time. They were doing quite well for themselves. Yeah. One of the before we even get started, let's talk mm-hmm. about the choice of music in this film because mm-hmm. the music is not an original score composed for it. It's uh, they they do they use the music of Bach, mm-hmm. uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, to uh, to score the film. And when I noticed that, I had two warring thoughts immediately in my head because uh, one of the standard con, uh, cons, one of the certain one of the standard complaints, I should say about Leon Klamowski's films, and it's one that um, most people feel when they've watched enough of them, and Nashi stated outright, mm-hmm. was that one of the problems with Klamowski's films is that usually the musical choices, there was a there was a rushed nature to the choice of music mm-hmm. and the placement of music within the film during the editing process, and sometimes mm-hmm. it made them feel sloppier than they should have been. And I can agree with that. Mm-hmm. There are moments in most of uh, Klamowski's horror films where the, the the music clashes with the imagery. The music seems to work sometimes against mm-hmm. the scene that it's set with, mm-hmm. and uh, it can be troubling and it can be disconcerting to say the least. Uh, so I thought immediately, oh wow! So they're going to use Bach music. They, so this is music that not only will be sort of familiar to most people's ears if they choose the the music that you know the, the music that people are most familiar mm-hmm. with. This will actually play well with expectations as we watch this story but then there's another part of me that goes but is it still going to be is it going to be used properly is it, <laughs> are we going to have a, a, bot, a bot piece set over yeah. the wrong type of scene or what's how's it going to play um, I was pleased actually to say that the music in this film is I think very well used mm-hmm. and I think that may be part of uh, why uh, it works so well is that it is there are classical pieces of course, it's also a big money-saving thing. You don't got to pay Bach anything. To, to yeah, use that's, there you go. But uh, and it's very heavily uh, harpsichord-driven in this. Yeah. It's the primary instrument, and um, I think I saw it as 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 just a kind of way of underscoring the uh, kind of the age of this family and the time that they're you know coming from, and then that they're kind of this dying sort of aristocracy family there. And it's I think so. I think it's used. There's even one scene, brief scene, that doesn't really elaborate too much on it, where they're all sitting playing instruments together. Obviously, they've yeah. all kind of grown up in that era where you sort of did that as a family, you know, where all the daughters were trained on an in- to use some sort of instrument. And right. so, yeah. That's... And and I think that that and that 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 actually is a fascinating scene that you know didn't need mm. to be in the movie at all. Right. But you're right; it does seem to it does seem to be there to point to the real age mm-hmm. that these characters are from yeah. where, yeah, you're right. The aristocracy, you, you know, you had, you, you made children learn mm-hmm. a musical instrument. You, yeah. you put them, you, you know, that, be, that was something that was yeah. essentially required. Yeah. Of course, that was something that was carried over into my youth where I was forced to take <laughs> years of piano lessons as well. <laughs> I was not a member of the aristocracy, <laughs> but damn it, I was still forced to learn to play the goddamn piano. <laughs> 
and I don't have any any horrible feelings about that. Not at all. I can tell. None at I can all. Tell. None. None. You don't grit your teeth when you hear Billy Joel or uh, Elton John or. <laughs> no, no, no. I don't grit my teeth. I just, I just, I just remember thinking, is that where the arthritis in my finger started? <laughs> is that what cranked that into high gear? Oh my goodness. Well, we were introduced to the to our what would essentially be our main two characters: is Berta, the uh, the granddaughter of Count Dracula. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is returning to her ancestral home, Castle Dracula, with her new husband. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've been married about a year, and she is pregnant. They make mm-hmm. sure that we are aware at the beginning of the film that she is about four months pregnant, and they're very excited about this. It's their first child, and they're very thrilled about this. About this, And, of course, that is also something that uh, mm-hmm. the rest of the family seems to be very thrilled about. We're introduced to them en route in a carriage, and uh, Bertha is actually asleep, and she's having a nightmare of being uh, chased by this huge bat creature yeah. through mm. uh, through a mansion, mm. uh, which which has no furniture. It's all kind of like yeah. empty rooms, and but it's this large bat creature that she's being chased by. They're en route to Castle Dracula at the time, and they they communicate this through dialogue. And then, uh, well, as you said before, mm. the the coachman uh, the the horses rear up. Near the Borga Borgo Pass, mm-hmm. and uh, the coachman says, "Hey, the the horses won't go on." Yeah, and to to kind of twist things a little yeah. bit from the way the story usually goes, the coachman says, "The horses won't go on; they won't go past here." And he mm-hmm. kind of knew this was going to happen. Yeah. He makes it clear he's willing to go along and help you know help them with their with mm-hmm. with their um, mm-hmm. luggage and everything. But he's it's it, I can't, I'm not going to get the horses to go past this this spot here. So uh, they uh, go into the local the the little town nearby there. And to to put the horses up in a stable, and they uh, meet meet the stable master there, who's this this young uh, bearded bearded guy, and uh, boy does he give us a lot of information about the local area because mm-hmm. and he I think he has reason to yeah, he has reason yeah. to, he has reason to because there's this bell ringing yeah, in the background, yeah. mm-hmm. and he says flat out it's the devil ringing the bell, mm-hmm. and so immediately they they ask what the hell are you talking about. And he explains that, that that bell is in the cemetery of Vlad Tepes, which is, you know, only a few kilometers from here. That bell always signals bad things are going to happen. Mm-hmm. And that this whole area is infested with lamias, mm-hmm. these, you know, seductress devils that, you know, come come out at night. And that bell pretends poor things will happen. And after listening to this guy talk about this for a while, they're they're more than a little taken aback. He seems <laughs> he seems Stable, but maybe crazy. <laughs> maybe not all the way there. And uh, after learning how that it's like fifteen kilometers away, that the castle's are fifteen kilometers away, they they just they're having to decide: do we stay here and kind of bed down in this stable with the crazy person and the coachman? Yeah. Or do we go on? They immediately decide: hey, the hell with it. We'll just walk. Well, this is one of my, the first uh, things that I kind of chuckled at is the is that uh, the husband played by Tony Isbear. I love the fact that he's adamantly just refuses. To let his poor pregnant wife sleep, you know, in a barn. But he's willing to force march her for miles through the night, through the forest, <laughs> to get to <laughs> to get to this end. There, so I thought that I, was pretty I, funny. I think he's kind of afraid. <laughs> I think they're both kind of afraid of staying there. Yeah. <laughs> let's, yeah. let's be clear. I think that there's a fear on both their parts that uh, this is probably a bad idea to stick around here. So. But I do like the kind of eeriness of this idea of the bell because we never do really see exactly what it is and the idea that because what the guy's whole point is we shouldn't be able to hear that bell. It's so far away. We ought not to be able to hear it and yet we can. Right. You know, so it's so there's a, that tells you right there that it's that there's, there's something, something wrong. supernatural about it. And I, I thought that was kind of a neat uh, 
neat idea. Well, Tony Isbear is, a, is an actor we've seen in a couple of Nashy films over the years. He was in uh, he was Nashy's protege in Inquisition. He was in Death of a President. Mm-hmm. He's in Cross of the Devil. Oh yeah, Cross the Devil, which Nashy wrote right. and then did not direct and was not in, right. much, to his, right. yeah. much to his consternation. Yeah, uh, as well as um, yeah, Sequestro, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. yeah. I was trying to remember Kidnapping. That's right. Yeah, yeah. right. Not only was he in a lot of Nashy films, he was just in a lot of films. Period. Because mm. Tony Isbear had a very long career. Yeah. That uh, I think I think he was in films all the way up through the nineties and yeah. the two thousands. Mm-hmm. Oh my goodness, he's in a couple of he's got a couple of short films that came out in twenty seventeen. I don't know what he was doing. Yeah. No. I, he's, he has he, he he had quite a career, and I'd like to see some of the other varieties of, of roles he's done. You know. Uh, you and I have talked about this before. It seems like most of the times we see him, he's playing something of a, either a cat or just a, a kind of a, a, a weak character, a weak willed character. Yeah. So, and then the case here is he's, he's interesting that I think his character is kind of interesting in this movie though, because you're never really sure along the line what to make of him there, you know, what he really knows, how much, you know, how much he's involved with what's going right. on, how much, you know, how much he's on the side of the vampires or how much he's on the side of his wife, you know, and, and it's, he keeps it kind of plays it close to the vest and the movie does too for a while. For a while. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the, uh, he, I, he's, uh, he's 69 now and still making movies yeah, to his yeah. Good for him. At least that's awesome. seems to be anyway. Yeah. So. Good for Mr. Isbeth. Yeah. Well, they decide to walk to Castle Dracula and uh, I got to say this walk there, uh, it's kind of creepy. <laughs> It is, and very unusual, yeah. It's, it's, they're, they're walking through the woods. There's a, a little bit of fog. There's not a lot of fog in this movie, but there's a little fog on this yeah. this night walk through mm-hmm. the woods. And uh, everything, they're going along, and they're they're talking to each other. They're, they're, they seem okay. Everything's mm-hmm. fine. And then they come across a half-nude yeah. woman in the forest there laid out. Mm-hmm. She's been the victim of something, and they spot her and go over toward go over toward her and it's clear they're about to do something when this woman gets up mm-hmm. covers herself yeah. and then uh, let's just say she doesn't get far yeah and so we cut to them uh, having carried this woman who they now think is dead mm-hmm. to a nearby uh, would you call that an inn looks yeah, more like I a think tavern so. or yeah I believe tavern and before we go past that oh, I just yeah. want to say that this whole Sequence is one of the most bizarre and, and interesting and sequences I, I can remember seeing in a, in a film in a while. Uh, because before they find this girl, they did that weird scene where, where Berta's kind of standing in front of the tree and the whole light just shifts yeah. and kind of this obvious light. Because they've been in the woods where there's almost no light at all. It really looks like they were filming at night, you know, where there's where all you see, the only thing really lit is her and the tree she's leaning against. And then there's almost this big spotlight obvious spotlight. I mean, the kind of thing that is obviously intentional, you know, they're not trying to hide it that just sort of sweeps across her. And then, then suddenly we're in what's obviously day for night. And it almost to me, it seems in a weird way that Klamovsky's kind of showing his hand in the sense like intentionally showing you that he's going to make a lighting change here rather than it just being <laughs> the kind of abrupt thing that you would notice as being like a mistake. He's almost like he's saying, right, you know, he's making an intentional one, drawing your attention to it, that we're suddenly going from total darkness to this kind of dusky look, this day for night look there. And then when they find the body of the girl, you just think she's dead. You think, okay, it's a vampire victim. And so it's a total shock when she suddenly just sits up, you know, and I think that's actually really set up really nicely. I, yeah. I think it's a very bizarre moment in the film, but that's the kind of thing that Klamowski can do sometimes is those, those strange ways, those odd ways of, of depicting things. Well, one of the things as a director I've always liked about Klamowski is his use of camera movement. Mm-hmm to tell the story. He mm-hmm. uses uh, the movement of the camera in wonderful ways, ways that nowadays we think we don't even think of anymore because they're mm-hmm. such a common part of how movies are done. But back in this period of time, 
uh, there weren't a lot of directors who would take the time to actually set up shots to you know to eat, to, to, to to set to build you know mm-hmm. to build uh, the, uh, the the tracks that would be necessary to move a camera around mm-hmm. to do certain shots and you know in a single take so that you're moving the camera within mm-hmm. the scene as the actors continue to act and he does that a fair amount throughout this movie and it's one of the things that kind of marks his style as different from others and I think that uh, mm-hmm. I, I often wonder and I'd love to have been able to, to ask him this question whether he developed that as a stylistic thing because he liked he liked that as a as a storytelling tool or if he developed it as a way to uh, have fewer mm-hmm. setups he can mm-hmm. move yeah. he can yeah. move the camera and keep and keep going and mm-hmm. therefore shoot you know two to three pages instead of one and a half page or something like that depending on how the how the, the sequences were were written but he's very good at uh, moving the camera along and therefore making things feel of course remember these are the days long before steady cams yeah uh, making it yeah. feel like a smooth thing where you're moving within the room or within uh, in this case in the forest you're moving along with the actors mm-hmm. um, as they are walking along through the forest and it doesn't feel the, the camera's not jumping it's not mm-hmm. as if this is some kind of you know uh, jerky her- herky jerky up and down movement at all it's a very smooth thing yeah. and it doesn't necessarily draw attention to itself but it is as soon as you start noticing how much camera movement he places within his shots yeah. he, he uses it effectively to tell the story there's a later on there's a, a scene that I doubt we'll we'll discuss in detail and I'll just mention it now where his camera starts on one side of the bed where the, this this couple uh, our, our main couple here mm-hmm. uh, are asleep on the bed and their their backs are to each other mm-hmm. and he starts on Tony Isbear on one side of the bed and then slowly comes around the bed and and till we're until we see uh, Berta the actress playing Berta it's it's all done in this one shot and there's no dialogue between the two of them because both of them are basically kind of pretending to be asleep yeah and uh, it's just this very smooth thing that you know could have been you know two different camera setups yeah. and you just you know you just do two, you just do an edit mm-hmm. to, to show that both of them are laying there at the same time and neither of them are asleep and are pretending to the other that they are yeah. but this is a it's just it's one of those smooth little things and it's I start to notice those things where he'll move the uh, in some of the sequences when they're at the dinner table he'll mm-hmm. move the camera around yeah. and he, this is allowing those actors to continue these scenes and, ma- and it feels much more natural it, ma- it, it makes you feel like you're just watching these scenes as they happen mm-hmm. instead of those moments where edits sometimes remind you that you're watching a story being mm-hmm. told to you instead of just mm-hmm. watching how this yeah. natural unfolding of dialogue in, between these characters and so um in this in this sequence, what you're what you're talking about there is is, mm-hmm. is a char- is a, a characteristic of his style, which mm-hmm. is, I'm just going to move the camera. Yeah. We're going to do this thing with the light, and mm-hmm. then yeah, we're filming at a different time, but yeah. this will match, and <laughs> yeah. it, it'll fool the eye just yeah. enough, right. So that you so that you won't uh, you won't freak out. They warned us. It's all crazy, Hans. Of what importance is it if we arrive late? My grandfather isn't expecting us on a certain date. Please, Bertha, you must relax. We come from a country that's civilized, and we're not going to sleep with our horses just because some superstitious clod talks about devils and witches. The Lamias are witches? Something like that, I suppose. Come, Berta, let's go on. If we walk fast, we'll be able to rest at the hotel. <laughs> it feels like someone is dragging me to the ground and I can't continue. <sighs> Hans, there's no trail here. We mustn't go on. These woods are filled with Russian thorns. They say the seed pods from that shrub came stuck to the horses all the way from Moscow. (laughs) 
I don't want to go on blindly. Your explanations are not enough, Hans. So we get the half-naked victim girl who appears to be dead to the tavern in, in, mm. in the woods. And this is where we meet uh, some of the local characters, yeah. shall we say. Yes, yes. They're <laughs> colorful. They, may, they are, indeed. Uh, yeah, they're... they're, they're they, they feel realistic, too. They, yeah. These characters feel like they would really, they, they would live in this area and have these attitudes. Klamovsky's pretty good at depicting the local uh, local color, you know, with or without yeah. a Nashi script to back it, you know. But but even in things like the Vampire's Night Orgy, you know, the, there's, there's there's definitely distinctive types. And he's very good at just displaying the, the, the uh, local village villagers there the local village morons yeah the yeah yeah the ones who the ones who laugh at everything and everything is an excuse for a vulgar joke and the ones who are ultra uh, you know superstitious and the ones who are dour and you know the ones who are seductive and just you know he's got the whole mix in here he's he's got the whole mix i'll 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 ask you this question Mm -hmm. i won't consider this too much of a spoiler for people who haven't seen the movie yet but were you a little disappointed that these people never got to Pick up torches and pitchforks and storm the castle. <laughs> well, it's just funny you say that. I, I was I was disappointed. I was kind of disappointed that the movie leaves them behind fairly early on, and because yeah. I thought some of the characters here, especially like the woman that kind of runs the whole show, you know, yeah. there, I thought some of those characters were some of the more interesting ones in the film, and I was sort of sorry that we we kind of bid them adieu fairly early on. I agree with you. I was I was I actually kept expecting them. Um, to pop back up. Mm, be the angry village yeah. mob, angry mob. I had, I had watched this film years ago, back when this DVD first came out, and I had memories of liking the film quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But this is the first time in over a decade that I had mm-hmm. watched this thing. Mm-hmm. And so there was a point in the movie where I realized, oh, I don't think those characters do come back at all. I think we're yeah. kind of we, we, we kind of had all that we're going to have of them. And that was a little bit of a, a yeah. little bit of a disappointment. I do want to say real quick, because you just reminded me of this, we should also let everybody know that if you are trying to hunt this film, it also goes by the title Saga of the Draculas. And I'm not sure if there's any other titles besides the Dracula Saga and Saga of the Draculas. But those are the just to let everybody know that that is a common one that pops up as well if you're trying to hunt, hunt this up. Well, if you're talking about alternate titles, the, the Dracula Saga, the Saga of the Draculas, there was, there was a release in the United States, I'm going to assume on video, on videotape, mm-hmm. called Death, Death, Death. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god! No, that's that awesome. can't be right. That's awesome. There's no way. Death, death, death. Oh my goodness! <laughs> that's great. Uh, also, possibly a title: Dracula: The Bloodline Continues. Well, that's which, pretty literal. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's really literal. If kind you just, of, especially you with hit the, the old stake on the head with the hammer and mallet, there, I think you know. But uh. <laughs> that's a good way to put it. Uh, yeah. So uh, in Italy, it was known as the Last Vampire. That's not bad. I can deal. I can deal with that. I can do with that title. But uh, the the Dracula Saga or the Saga of the Draculas, either of those titles is actually pretty effective. It's pretty effective. I actually kind of like the Saga of the Draculas. I kind of like the the cadence of that. I do too. too, (laughs) But, uh, well, I I will say that uh, if you do want to see it, it is a rentable uh, film on uh, Amazon Prime. For $2.99, you can rent a version of it on there. I can't attest to the print quality, but you can see it on Amazon Prime. So um, there's your there's an option. Mm-hmm. I'm sure somebody out there somewhere has probably put it up on YouTube for yeah. free as yeah, well. Probably so. Who knows? By the way, in the uh, just let people know also too is is you will notice from time to time. And I guess this is one of those inevitable kind of drawbacks of of uh, digital age there. But you can sometimes see the gauze over the camera. But I think it's interesting that you can see that they tried to do. You know, we can every oh, yes. few scenes where you can see this where they're over the camera. You can tell that they actually put this kind of 
mesh or something just to obviously to, to, to do something with the color like yeah, well, it it's kind of neat to see something like that and just you know kind of remind you of the things cinematographers do or that they were trying to do to get certain effects and it doesn't it's not distracting at all it's just a couple of scenes because of the particular lighting and you can you can make out the little patterns in the in the in the image yes yeah, so. which which is which is weird because the first time you see it you're like what the hell yeah yeah <laughs> Well, when the the doc shows up to take a look at uh, this uh, this poor victim girl, he comes in. This once again, he's an interesting character. He yeah, a, yeah, he's he's got a he's got a limp. He he, he has to use a, a crutch all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I will say, well, we, we meet the uh, the the traveling Bible salesman or reverend or whatever mm-hmm. the heck he is, who's played yeah. by Louis Sidges, mm-hmm. who's a, an actor we've seen in a bazillion oh, films things, yeah. Spain, yeah. And uh, he, he he's a great character actor character actor. And he's he's of course babbling about mm. because the, the the young woman is very attractive, yeah. And uh, the, the 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 blood that they're having to treat the the wounds do appear to be not just on her neck but mm. down around her breasts. And so he's 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 doing the regular you know religious fanatic sin babbling. Mm. And the uh, doctor comes in and starts examining the body, and uh, he uses a phrase that I'm not sure is period appropriate, which is sex maniac. <laughs> and it just that always stood out where I was like. I don't know that that would be a phrase. Is that a phrase that would be used in the early 1900s? I fear that it would just well, it would, there would be another. Yeah. I mean, there would be another phrase. I'm yeah. pretty sure. Yeah. But uh, they're they're rather shocked to discover that this woman isn't dead because they've yeah. all thought she's dead, and then she mm. she sets up. Although the look on her face as she's laying there is a woman who. Whatever whatever yeah. caused her to die seemed to have been pleasurable. Yes, she had so, a good time. Well, when she when she pops up, they're all a little surprised by this, but she she she's not running off on them. She runs off later on in the middle yeah. of the night. But the uh, the sheriff shows up, starts uh, starts talking about uh, various and sundry things similar to this that have yeah. happened around the region. The sheriff, yeah. most useless character. I was about to say uh... <laughs> probably. Uh, most useless character. Not the man you'd want to have leading a posse, I think. Well, I mean, he has absolutely. I mean, you yeah. could edit him out. Of oh, the film oh, yeah, oh, absolutely, not, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. there's, there's, mm-hmm. he's in mm-hmm. this scene. He's in the scene a little bit later on when mm-hmm. uh, Bertha wakes up and can't find anybody in the castle, and she goes, she goes back to this tavern, and, mm-hmm. and is is complaining because she saw you know gypsies mm-hmm. having sex out in mm-hmm. the woods, mm-hmm. and the <laughs> the sheriff is there too, going, damn it, we got to run these gypsies out of here, and it's like he's just around to go. <laughs> Hmm, somebody attacked this girl. We should do something about that. And then, oh, gypsies are having sex in the woods. We should run them out of the area. (laughs) You're useless, man. Just go away. Oh, and and talking about phrases that I'm not sure were ever said at any particular time in history. I got got a huge laugh out of what the the doctor says. and, And this has been both the subtitle version and the English dub, which still doesn't mean that it was in the original script. It could be the fault of the dubbers, but... He's talking about treating the girl, this girl, and he says, she must have an infusion of blood from some animal. Now, <laughs> from some animal. Now, maybe they're trying to make a point about, you know, Medicaid, medicine, but I don't know that there's ever been any point in history where it was thought to be a good idea to take the blood of just some animal and transfuse it into, got, in, into a human. You know, anybody just, get a dog around? Yeah, I'm going to round up some squirrels and we'll get this girl back <laughs> on her feet again. I just, <laughs> you know, in the same breath he says, uh, and give her some raw chopped liver. Now, okay, that, that I can see sense. is maybe, but infusion from just some animal, I just don't think that's period appropriate ever. <laughs> Probably not. 
<laughs> well, it's during this during this period in this tavern where we spot uh, the luscious bar wench. Oh who's, yes, who's making eyes at Hans, the the mm. husband. Hans mm. is the the name of Berta's husband. Uh, she's making very obvious eyes mm. at him, and uh, we 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 see very quickly that she's already she's already been bitten by a vampire. She's yeah. hiding the wound on her yeah. neck. I mean, we're giving this information yeah. instantaneously yeah. Oh, yeah. so that we know what her situation is. Mm-hmm. Uh, the character's name is uh, Stella or Stella. Stella, yeah, I believe, yeah. And uh, we've seen this actress oh, before. Yes. This is uh, Beth Saba Ruiz, mm-hmm. who uh, was she the first victim in Horror Rises from the Tomb? She's an early victim. In she's Horror an early. Rises. She plays. Uh, um, She's the she plays Paul Nash's uh, girlfriend, and uh, um, in in Horror Rises now I think she was the first victim in the Lorelai's grasp. Uh, oh, she, she's, she she's the first was, thing we see in yeah. Lorelai's grasp. She's the, she, yeah, she's the bride to be at the very beginning of Lorelai's grasp. She mm-hmm. she was like perpetual victim in all these Spanish mm-hmm. horror films. <laughs> yeah. so it's not a big shock to see her be, mm-hmm. play the victim in this film as yeah. well. She was also in uh, Werewolf Shadow, although right off the top of my head, I don't remember exactly which character she played. Actually, you know what? I think she played. Uh, Pierre's our our, our, oh, our hero Pierre's hero Pierre. I think she played his girlfriend, and she's also in was in Santo versus Doctor Death, which we covered on uh, on yep. Beyond Nashi not yep. long ago. So, yeah, but she's one of the one of the many horror horror rises from the tomb people, and in, uh, in this film, yeah. And if if there was any doubt about uh, the the bar wench Stella's uh, affiliation with the local vampires, she gets a visit uh, that yeah. she gets a visit that night that she's very much looking forward to. Yeah, you know, cue you know topless scene when. And a mysterious, you know, cape vampire yeah. into the room. And now this is another, uh, you know, we also never in that scene. I don't think we ever know whether that's Dracula or one of the no, we don't girls, yeah. one of the yeah. one of the Dracula's family. But I don't think I've seen this. This is Klamovsky doing something that I don't recall right off seeing in another movie. We've seen many times the 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 kind of thing about the vampire's bite being orgasmic, you know, or yes. being and you know the woman or the victim getting sexual pleasure. But in this case, we then cut to our happy couple and they're in the other room and they're basically hearing what they think is it's sex, sex happen yeah. and hearing her moans thinking that it's sex through the walls and I thought was, you know, I was thinking I don't think I've ever seen that depicted that way in a vampire movie and that's really actually a pretty clever way that's a clever thing to do you know really just to wait, take wait. that even further to where people yeah. listening outside thinking Oh, she's having sex in there. <laughs> I, you know, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I can't think of, uh, a, I can't think of a similar sequence in another yeah. film off the top of my head. Yeah. So maybe you're right. Yeah, I, d- I don't know. That's so you could be, you could be right. Um, okay, well then the next day they, the, our happy couple finally arrive at the castle because mm-hmm. the uh, the major domo of the castle, who's uh, played by an actor who was very in very few films, yeah. this guy shows up and he says, uh, the, the, mm-hmm. the count and the family have mm-hmm. sent me to, 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 to bring you to, to the castle. It's this actor who uh, was only in a few films, mm. and it's kind of weird because he's a very striking, striking. Yeah, you would think guy. his looks would have gotten. Yeah. You would think his looks would have gotten him more film roles. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he was only in mm. like uh, he was in like only uh, two or three films, mm-hmm. and then strangely enough, he was in an episode of Growing Pains, the the, the, the sitcom, <laughs> which is truly here strange. in the states. <laughs> I have the feeling that that information has got to be incomplete, but that, I can't yeah. find any any more information mm. about this actor uh, known as JJ Palladino. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm not even sure that's. I'm not even sure that that's not a pseudonym. So who the Maybe. heck knows? Yeah. Um, anyway, he he's the major domo. He has a good sized role in this movie, but it's yeah. apparently the only film he has a good sized role in. But uh, he quits himself quite well. Mm-hmm. He uh, he brings them to the castle. Um, I thought this was very neat because mm-hmm. the very first thing that Berta insists on doing is visiting the uh, uh, the crypt. Yeah. Because she wants to see uh, the. A particular grave, particular resting place. Mm-hmm. 
and they go in and they're looking they're looking around and she's reading the names off the various uh, resting places within mm-hmm. the crypt and she starts to realize that this one is her grandfather's grave who she's here to see mm-hmm. and then she reads off the name of the the two uh, cousins that mm-hmm. she grew up with mm-hmm. that she's very much looking forward mm-hmm. to seeing again here and mm-hmm. she sees their gravestones she's very taken aback she's really surprised she doesn't understand and she starts seeing other names mm-hmm. and her husband and um, uh, the uh, major domo uh, Gabor they actually mm-hmm. tell him hey the, I, 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 these are you know, these these names these these are these have got to be you know ancestors these are mm-hmm. not the same people that you're thinking of it can't be come on let's, let's get mm-hmm. into the house mm-hmm. and she she rides with that just a little bit but it still seems to puzzle her a little strongly um Especially the grandfather, because that that's a very specific name. Her grandfather's name is yeah. a very specific name. Well, they get into the castle, this big house, and the family is not around. And really quickly, the majordomo is trying to like mm-hmm. paper over without saying anything specific about. Well, no, 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 they'll mm-hmm. they're around. Don't worry about it. Well, let me get you to your room, and all <laughs> yeah. of a sudden, the other. And he's very smooth about it, but it's very clear that eh, it's, it's mm-hmm. daylight, and the mm-hmm. family's not around. This is a little mm-hmm. little. What's the name of this film again? Oh yeah, this is good. <laughs> <laughs> he says you, you know, you'll see you'll see them soon you'll see them soon. Um, so they go to the room and Berta's yeah a little upset about this. Mm. This is really kind of weird. She's not she's not sure what's going on. Mm. And at this point, you start to you have to start to think. Well, this is a woman who's been having weird bad mm. person dreams. Yeah. So is she starting to get a little bit concerned about maybe things from her past mm. that she doesn't remember? Mm-hmm. So she uh, she and the husband separate for, for whatever reason, and she starts walking around the house and just looking for things. She's At this point, she's even just looking for the servants, mm-hmm. and she can't find them. She goes into the kitchen, and it, it looks like a kitchen that has been in recent use. Mm-hmm. It's you know, there's everything seems to be in place, and there there you know there there's evidence of food preparation in the recent past. And this is where we get one of my favorite moments in the movie. Somebody throws a cat at her. <laughs> I was I was waiting for you to get to the. This is. I know it's our old favorite, uh, old favorite the the spring loaded cat, and this yep. may be one of the worst I've ever seen. Because, it's awful. Well, for two reasons: one, the poor cat almost turns a somersault; he's thrown so badly, almost turns a completely. Two, it's not; it doesn't shock you or make you jump like the scene's even supposed to, because it's not set up very well. And no. I, generally, if you're you know if you're going to make a scene like that work, you have to start to build attention in the audience. They're looking for something; you have to draw their eye to a certain point. And then you you unleash that. In this case, you're not set up or ready at all, and it's so you don't. So it, it, it not only does it look bad, it doesn't even make you flinch or even like jolt you. It's just a bad scene altogether. It, it, yeah, you just it, all it is is she's, she's looking around the kitchen, and yeah. suddenly, and then suddenly, it's very clear somebody yeah. off 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 out of frame throws yeah. a cat. Yeah. <laughs> it's very bizarre. It's, it's very strange. Well, after you know, she accepts the fact that someone somewhere threw a cat at her. Yeah. She, Walks into the this little dining room, and uh, their lunch is laid out for them. Mm. So the so the the servant has you know has laid out uh, a meal for them, and her husband's there, and he's like, well let's you know let's sit down mm. and eat. We haven't anything to eat, so let's go ahead and sit down here. She's a this really feels like another chunk besides the Borgo Borgo Pass and all that mm. kind of Borgo Pass. This feels like another chunk straight out of Bram Stoker's right, novel. Right, yeah. This really feels mm. like something out of the book. Uh, this whole this whole sequence where the the uh, the almost raw you know not very yeah. not very not yeah. at all overcooked beef yeah. is a little too bloody for her tastes and it kind of does a nice 
visual play on the old famous, you know, I don't drink wine line in the fact that they have wine here, but it's very obviously, <laughs> very obviously blood. Blood, yeah. yeah, very um, bright hammer blood is what it looks like. Oh, and this is the point where uh, uh, Hans tells mm-hmm. her, hey, I found, mm-hmm. you know, they were puzzling over the fact there were no mm-hmm. mirrors mm-hmm. hanging in the bedroom and he mm-hmm. found one and hung mm-hmm. it up. Yeah. And so he's, he's saying, you know, I found, I found the mirrors. Mm-hmm. It's like they just took them down or something for it. Foul bauble of man's vanity. Yeah. Foul bauble of man's vanity. Another Dracula reference there. Exactly. Um, He noticed that after they've eaten, they're still a little puzzled because the family is nowhere in evidence. But uh, Hans does get a little fascinated by this photograph of uh, this woman, and it's Helga Mm Linnae. If we haven't told you already, folks, Helga Linnae is in this film. Yes. All hallelujah! All shout hallelujah! All oh, bow yes. down before the queen. Yes. Helga Linnae is in the house. Yes, I would, I would, I would pause at a photo of her too. I can't, can't blame <laughs> the guy for being a little bit curious. <laughs> well, I, I do like the fact that before we see the character, before the mm. the actress and the yeah. rest of the family actually appears, we have him clearly being enamored of her image in this yeah. in, in this photograph. And so, um, although I still find the the seduction scene a little shocking, a little <laughs> yeah. quick. Yeah, uh, setting the setting up a couple of scenes here before he mm. meets her with mm. him kind of amazed by her, kind of mesmerized by her image is a good idea. But uh, um, still, no one's around. They decide to they're going to go outside the house and look around. They realize that they're locked in. Mm. That that the house has been like bolted down, and they're the only ones in the house. They don't know what the hell's going on. And, Berta kind of freaks out a little bit and starts starts crying and uh, is kind of left to her own devices there on the bed weeping when her husband comes in and get, and dries her eyes and says, listen, the entire family's downstairs. They're downstairs now. Mm-hmm. So clearly, let's just be clear, night has fallen and the family has shown up. Yeah. And surely enough, they go downstairs uh, to have supper with the entire family and they're all there. Even the servants mm-hmm. are there. Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody's oddly pale. Yeah. And she's so happy to see her cousins, yeah. but yeah. oh, they have such cold hands. I know they're obviously like freezing cold. Yeah, this is this is mm. kind of odd. So they have they sit down, and uh, this is a this is another little piece that feels like kind of an expansion out of the Stoker novel, mm-hmm. which is the family sits down uh, to dinner, and once again, it's uh, it's beef that's a little too undercooked yeah. as far as mm-hmm. she's concerned. Mm-hmm. Now at lunch. They both had tried this really thick wine. Or no, no, no they hadn't tried. Hans she did. She yeah. Hans tried. Hans tried. Hans tried it, and uh, decided that it was terrible. Yeah. Well, there's more of the the. Mm. There's a couple of bottles of this wine there, and uh, the count Count Dracula uh, explains that this is a this is a vintage that you can really only get in this region, mm. and uh, one of the girls mentions that they haven't. You know that that, that uh, their uh, the basement is full of this of this vintage. This is the only region you can get it in. We have it in. You know we have quite a bit of it mm. uh, in our in our wine mm. cellar, and then um, both of our main characters are poured some of this wine, and this time Hans tries it and he seems to like yeah, it. Yeah, that which I kind of like that touch of you know a very yeah. kind of subtle way of showing his turn to how he's already starting to even yeah. though he hasn't really been bitten no that he's already kind of starting but to there's, be a, there's there. some kind of influence yeah. right yeah. and so bertha she doesn't like the look of it and she doesn't like the smell of it but she does try the wine mm. but it's obviously revolting to her and her reaction to this is so is that she's so appalled by her reaction to it while everybody mm. else is obviously mm. enjoying it that it really upsets her and she runs out of the room mm-hmm uh, her husband goes to follow her. Uh, Helga Linnae's character um, hops up and says, I'll, I'll check on her. You stay here. 
Uh, she leaves the room, comes back, and says she's she's upset, and she just she's just she's gone ahead and laid down uh, for the evening. And that's kind of the end of that as as far as uh, the, the the wine sequence at dinner here is concerned. But we get a lot of information in this sequence. Yeah, I like a lot of the dialogue and the way this dinner scene is played out. I like the. Um, well, let's let's talk about the actors. We already talked yeah, about uh, we already talked about Helga Linnae. She plays Count Dracula's mm. uh, new wife, or uh, mm. a, a, a wife that was definitely not present mm-hmm. when Berta was a child before right. she left here and went out mm-hmm. to uh, to somewhere else in the world. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, this is a new character to her. The name of the character is uh, Munia. Uh, it is M U N I A. Munia. I'm trying to remember if that's exactly right. how they pronounce it. That's it. Yeah, I think so. So. Um, uh, she's uh, clearly she she immediately is trying to ingratiate herself to Berta and uh, tells her how happy she is to mm-hmm. see her and meet her and all this that and the other and there's this there's this feeling that uh, Berta's a little leery of her from Jump Street she's a little mm-hmm. concerned mm-hmm. but the uh, she has nothing to you know, she has nothing to base this on except that she has had already had the weird the first time she's seen her has been in a a dream which is a very effective dream that she has where she's kind of and we see all the family. The dream becomes pretty quickly, suddenly grisly, and I won't give yeah. away how because it's actually one of the better shock scenes in the yes. in the uh, very well done. But that may be some of her trepidation is the first time she's seen these people has already been in a in in a in a, in in a, a nightmare. Yeah. So, well, yeah, nightmare. I was I said yeah. dream, but you're you're yeah. right to call it a nightmare, of course. Yeah. Um, so, Berta's upset. There's there's a lot of weirdness going on here. She seems to be having uh, dreams that are actually mm-hmm. premonitions. Mm-hmm. She's seeing things in this dream that don't make any sense. Mm-hmm. And then she's seeing these people who she hasn't seen in years, and she's seeing them before, you know, she's seeing what they look like before she actually mm-hmm. arrives. Mm-hmm. So clearly there's a, a lot going on. But the, some of the some of the, some of the tales, some of the, the actor playing Count Dracula is someone we need to talk about. Definitely. Because he is a striking actor. He really is. And he looks very much like what I've always imagined Dracula mm-hmm. in Stoker's mm-hmm. novel looks mm-hmm. like. He looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's this. He's uh, this. This thin, although not gaunt. No. Uh, bearded, pale man. Very aristocratic features. He he has the look of someone who's used to commanding people, mm-hmm. and yet he also has the ability to be quite gentle. He he's very soft spoken with his family members. It's he, he very much is a man who seems to be able to uh, be both forceful but sweet. And uh, that's something that comes comes across very well in his in his various scenes in this. Mm-hmm. And as an actor, I don't know that I'd ever seen him in anything before. Well, I can tell you one. What's that? We saw him, and you mentioned about him being able to play a gentle character too. Is the uh, first time that we saw him was uh, in Night of the Werewolf, uh, where he plays the professor uh, briefly at the early part of the film before the girls go go traveling off to to find. You know, the, the, to where they end up, where they meet Paul Nash. You remember oh, that guy? That's, that's that. right. So seeing him there, we would have had, had uh, neither of us had any idea at that point that he is actually was actually a genre star, basically, it had, or it had made many films where he would played in supernatural roles. Yeah, at, wait a minute. As we dig into his, you're, yeah. you're right. He was the, uh, the 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 professor in the wheelchair, not mm-hmm. a werewolf, but he was also a character in I Hate My Body, mm-hmm. which is we didn't mention. I don't think earlier necessarily when we were talking about Klamowski, but that if you want to see one of Klamowski's most unusual films, that's that's, that's one to one see. Right yeah, there, yeah. But he's a man who, uh, well, as an actor, he was in uh, more than a hundred. And more than 100 credits as an actor, yeah. including a lot of television all the way through the 90s. Yeah. Um, 
he apparently did a lot of anthology tell like horror anthology uh, television as far as i can tell right and but as a director he di- he also directed a couple of television movies in the uh, in the 50s and then in the 60s he directed a lot of television all the way up through 1970 <coughs> mm-hmm. all the way up through 1970 so he was a a director and an actor with a lot of credits to his name, mm-hmm. and uh, man, is he an interesting actor! He's very good in this movie. Mm-hmm. He is. Um, yeah, and apparently he played Count Dracula a couple of times earlier in his career too. So yeah, you see, and you see why you know people look casting director directors looked at him and and thought, oh yeah, you're our Dracula. <laughs> you can see why. Well, we should also note that he's the father of the the great and amazing Spanish filmmaker. Narciso Ibanez Serrador, uh, a filmmaker who, uh, a Spanish filmmaker who only made two movies, two feature films his entire career, and we've covered both of them here yeah, on, the, on, yeah, the, on the podcast. And they're both excellent. Yeah. The the house the the house that screamed mm-hmm. and who could kill a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, of course, what uh, Mr. Serrador uh, was actually more famous for was for uh, a whole lot of a whole lot of work on uh, Spanish television. Including a game show that apparently made him a mint mm-hmm. called uh, One Two Three, mm-hmm. but his father, my goodness, mm-hmm. what an incredible actor! And as yeah. Dracula here, he he is fantastic. It's yeah. not a shock to learn that he played this character more than once. Yeah. And uh, once again, it's a, it's one of those situations where it's sad that this man has passed because boy, I would love to find yeah. an interview with him where yeah. someone sat down and questioned him on his approach to playing the ca- the mm-hmm. character of Dracula. One of the things I really like too that they do in this film, it's, it's a nice subtle thing, is what they do with his makeup, how it changes. But you know, you have to be looking closely. It's very subtle because you know when we first see him, he's very very pale and gaunt and and yeah. almost decayed looking, but. They do the thing that's straight from the Dracula novel where when he drinks blood, he grows younger, but they make it, they don't make it very extreme here. But, but there's certain scenes of the film where you can tell just from the way they've made his makeup more natural looking and his hair color more natural looking that he's fed, but it's, it, but it's not an extreme change where he suddenly like got dark black hair. He's suddenly like, you know, yeah. you know, suddenly 30 years younger. It's not that kind of change. It's just a subtle thing to show it's, you it's that he's fed. And it, and it is nice. It's like I say. It's a, you're right. It's another one of those things taken straight from from mm-hmm. Stoker's novel, where mm-hmm. uh, it's it's rare. It's rarely used in uh, modern film adaptations, and it's mm-hmm. something nice that they're folding into this one. It's, mm-hmm. un, it's unexpected, and it's really it's really a sweet little detail. Is true. Yeah. It's the first one down at the end. Felicia Castelnuovo de Tepes. In memoriam. Who wanted and knew how to keep silent. Ivo Vlad de Tepes. Count Dracula. It's grandfather. must hurry. Your family is waiting. Don't think about it. Your grandfather is very anxious to see you. 
so here at the dinner scene where you're also introduced to uh, Berta's cousins, yep. the two sisters, uh, Xenia and Irena. Xenia being played by uh, one of one of uh, my favorite actresses uh, from the Spanish horror film is uh, Maria Costi, who we've seen in many things. A beautiful blonde lady. Mm-hmm. And never often given the starring roles. Uh, she did have the starring role or the female lead in uh, Night of the Seagulls, but beyond that, she was usually in supporting roles and... and uh, but I, but had a really lengthy has has had a, a very lengthy film career and um, uh, but as far as the genre yeah. film yeah but uh, but she always does very well always great to see her and then uh, on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of career is uh, playing um, Arena is Christina Christina Suriani and we mostly would we recognize her mainly from uh, Horror Rides from the Tomb she played Vic Winter's girlfriend in that yeah. The unusual thing about Christina Suriani is how brief her filmography is. She made very few films. Now about five movies, yeah. You can find a lot of pictures of her on like uh, magazine covers, and so she obviously had a modeling career. And um, yeah. but she was, I mean, she's a beautiful woman, and and has does a fine job in the roles that she's given. So I thought I always thought it was kind of unusual that she didn't have a, more of a film career. But it could be that her modeling career was really what she mainly concentrated on and it could also be that it's just one of those cases where it wasn't for her she didn't care for the acting and you know and and, and retired from it early well she's uh she's another one of those actors who came from argentina yeah okay, so yeah. maybe you know maybe that's a connection with her and klamovsky i'm not positive that could very well be and it does appear that she spent a fair amount of time she was a dancer as well at least a trained dancer and it looks like she did some theater work that involves uh, musicals and that kind mm-hmm. of uh, you know musical theater productions, and uh, her brief film career seems to have come to a halt mainly because, um, well, near the end of the seventies, she you know she did not have any desire to be involved in what Spanish cinema was turning into. I, I don't <laughs> think she was interested in being in, in softcore sex films, which yeah. is where the Spanish cinema was going. That was definitely at, where at it was. Time. Yeah, that would make a lot of sense if she yeah if you weren't if you were an actress at that time in that film community and and that's not the direction you wanted to go. I imagine you would you would find your opportunities or, you know, find the areas that you're interested in, in, yeah, yeah, going away. But yeah, she did do a lot of modeling for magazines and things Mm -hmm. of that nature, so apparently Mm -hmm. that was was how she made a fair amount of her money early in her career. A striking, beautiful woman, I'm always glad to see her turn up, but it is a rare thing. She's a a rare thing to see. She's she's like spotting that uh, that strangely colored bird, (laughs) sadly flitted away from us too soon. But there's fun things in this in this scene, uh, the way it's played out, and and uh, you know it's obvious that Helga Linnae's character is is kind of more the mother of the you know she's kind of more motherly. She has to call, call them down because they're they're so fascinated by their cousin. They're so fascinated by Berta. Oh, and but what's clothes, interesting is the way that once the luggage. Oh shows yeah, up. so that's it's it's they're almost like two little girls, even though we can figure they're probably decades old, you know, old, but they've never quite grown past being. Yeah. And they're fascinated with her. I love the way when they're asked about pregnancy, the way they ask about their time, you know, what's it like to have a living being in your belly? And yeah. which coming from a vampire has a totally different meaning than it would <laughs> be from. But it always raises this question of, of uh, or it kind of leads us to to kind of understand that, you know, that, that uh, uh, you know, wondering how this family all became vampires. Do they all, you know, are they born with the disease? Do they do they vamp each other? But you kind of get the idea that in general, being able to procreate is not something that just any of them can do. Right. You know, and, uh, and which it, is why Berta is special. So. Yeah, and that, and you do get the sense that the reason Berta is special is because she did move away from mm-hmm. the family home. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think this is, a, there, there's a great scene 
right after uh, Berta leaves the uh, the uh, dining room table, after she's uh, after she's upset about finding the taste of the wine pretty terrible. Mm-hmm. She has this scene where she's looking around in this room looking for, uh, she's looking through books and things of this nature. It's as if she's searching for something. And her grandfather, the Count, comes in and they have uh, a scene together. They talk, they, they speak. And uh, this is where he communicates clearly to her that their line, their family line, the Dracula family, is exhausted. He uses that word. He uh, There's a, a great melancholy that this entire family suffers from. And that he he tells her flat out that your your child this this mm-hmm. child that you're bearing mm-hmm. uh, is going to not just be the heir to the, the the name and the estates, but also essentially the savior of this entire family. This is this this child will be able to reinvigorate this family and hopefully move it beyond this terrible disease that the entire family mm-hmm. suffers under, which keeps us so uh, restricted. Uh, it's it's a, it's a great scene. It's very well acted by both actors. Mm-hmm. We should we should point out, by the way, the actress that plays uh, Berta, uh, Tina uh, Sands. Sands, maybe I'm just saying Sands. I don't know if that's correct. I'm not, or not sure but... if that's the correct pronunciation of her last name, but she is fantastic in this film, and she kind of has to be. I mean, she's the she's the central character, and and almost everything dramatic does really kind of hinge on her character. And although she spends a fair amount of the movie being broken down and we're not going to go into the, the right. details of the final act mm-hmm. of the movie does she is finally in the at the point where she's isolated enough that she starts to become a little unhinged um, I still find the casting of her to be kind of odd I mean I agree that oh. she's good well just because the fact that you know what have we been talking about all these familiar faces that we've seen and all these you know these veterans True. of the she had a full Film, you know, full career. I mean, she played a lot of, made a lot of films, but as best I can tell, I know you can't always tell by the untranslated titles, but as best I can tell, genre films or horror films specifically were not a very big part of her filmography. So I no. think it's, I would love to know how she came to be given the main role in this film, given that there are other actresses around that time that I could have easily seen been given this role. For instance, the first one that comes to mind is obvious one is Emma Cohen because we've got the yeah. whole rest of the cast practically of Horror Rises from the Tomb. That's true. Yeah. And uh, now it could be that because I think actually I think this was made before Strange Loves of the Vampire, although I could be wrong about that. But I don't yes, know. I think it okay. Was. Um, Strange who, Loves we, of the Vampire I think was seventy four, seventy five. I think so. Which did have Emma Cohen, which was Klamowski film and did have Emma Cohen in the main role, but. I don't know if maybe Tina Sands already had a certain box office pull at this time, and maybe that's how she got the role. But I, I do think it kind of. I just thought it was really strange that out of all this recognizable cast, that we get this this actress that I don't believe we're going to see in any of the other films that we're likely to to cover. Yeah, I'm not sure. I know that by the time she'd done this film, she had done a lot of television work. Yeah, uh, in Spain, and that could be again that may be the reason why they thought to see let's put her in here and see if she can you know draw in some box office. But you know, she's not helped in the movie by some rather awkward wigs at times. You know, but but <laughs> but you know, uh, as compared to the other women, get pretty if they're wearing wigs or some natural hair or whatever, it, it looks very good with the rest of the actresses. But hers is a little distracting at times. But she does. Uh, but you're right. I mean, she does fine with the role. I just, I just kind of find it, find it a little odd that she, she got this role. But it, she, I think she's quite good, and you're right. It is, as far as I can tell, the only mm. horror picture yeah. she ever made. Yeah, yeah. But she's she's good in the role, and I do I, – I, I get to the point where this scene I just described between mm. her and uh, the actor playing Count Dracula is so good between the two of them. I, I kept mm. wanting there to be more scenes like mm. that, and there's a brief moment – 
<clears throat> right right about near the midpoint of the film, um, Hans, her husband, mm-hmm. uh, who has been looking longingly at Helga Linnea, as, yeah, as, as you, you do. do. <laughs> <laughs> um, he, uh, his, his wife is in bed asleep, and he's uh, downstairs, and uh, Helga Linnea's character wa- walks up to him. And immediately begins disrobing, and I, could no you pillow, call, no pillow talk here. Would, would, you, would you call this a seduction? Uh, it's, I, I don't. I don't. Is I, there what's what's the next word up from seduction? It's more like a uh, uh, come get me, more like a come I, and I, get I, it, boy, or something. Force, forcible sexual activity. I mean, it's not rape because no, God knows is, he's no. willing. But no, yeah. But there's th- th- at that moment mm. that, that that's the moment when uh, she not only sexually seduces mm. uh, Hans, but mm. Uh, she also vamps him, so yeah, there's yeah. no there's no doubt from this point forward that Hans mm-hmm. uh, has switched teams. If he hadn't already been thinking about switching teams yeah. in the first place, yeah. considering the mm-hmm. uh, the uh, the eyes he'd been making mm-hmm. at the bar wench mm-hmm. earlier. But the uh, imagine I, you can you can see the clothed version of this mm-hmm. scene as an mm-hmm. extra on the on the mm-hmm. VCI DVD. Yeah. yeah, and my God, what a neutered scene it is without <laughs> sure. that nudity. Because it's like that's what that is what I talked about earlier. Yeah. The shock of the nudity mm. in this film because Helga has been completely clothed mm. the entire time in this movie, and she walks in and there's not a single word said, and she's naked. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just a moment of utter shock. And, it, and and what what's great at that moment is that it places the audience in the same position that Tony mm. Isbear playing mm. Han. Mm. Hans has to be at that point in time, yeah. which is holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> what in the hell is happening to me here? So, you know, it's it's either the I'm the luckiest guy Maybe in the customs world customs are strange or, in this land. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> who, who, who knew Transylvania was so strange? This is why have I never come here before? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's from this point forward where you realize that whether he, whether uh, she whether uh, she wants to be or not, she's isolated. Yeah. Uh, Berta is on her own, and what I love is that we see the whole family observing the seduction of Hans, mm. whether he whether Hans oh, yeah. knows it or not. Yeah. They're watching from the stair from the staircase, mm. and then the count who's very satisfied that this is happening, mm-hmm. um, walks upstairs and goes into the bedroom where Bertha is sleeping. And at first he sits down on the bed next to her, and he's got this grandfatherly look mm-hmm. on his face, and he puts his hand out and he puts it on her left breast mm-hmm. as if his job was now to come in and do the same thing to her. Mm-hmm. But you can watch this actor who's so good mm-hmm. Decide he can't do that. Yeah. There's a look yeah. that comes over this man's face, and it's all there's mm-hmm. no dialogue. He doesn't say a yeah. word. There's no voiceover. There's nothing mockish or stupid or mm-hmm. or, or uh, awkward about it at all. But he makes the decision that he's not going to do this. Yeah, and it's clear that he had gone in there to do it. That was yeah. the intent right. when he right. entered the room. And it's just a, it's a really great scene. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I with the strength of the earlier scene between those two actors. And then this scene where she's just, you know, she's just asleep, but it's all in his face. The acting is all in his face. I just kept wanting there to be more scenes of that type uh, later yeah. on as the film yeah. went on. The movie goes in a different direction as yeah. far as the story it's telling. In other words, it's it's not dissatisfying that there aren't more scenes like that. It's just mm-hmm. that, I, I, that it wouldn't fit what they're doing. Mm-hmm. But boy, just, uh, I, I wish they'd kind of been able, they'd kind of been able mm-hmm. to work a few more things like that in there yeah. because the actor, is, the actor is really bringing his A game to this stuff. Yeah. And something, uh, I, once we've introduced to the Dracula family, 
Um, from there on out, we get many uh, scenes where they're observing something together as a family, and you can kind of all, you can sort of even hear the discussions between Klamovsky and his cinematographers. We've got three beautiful women and this great looking Count Dracula. I want to arrange them in all the photogenic, cool, po- you know, yeah. interesting, beautiful, po- you know, dress them in all these different colors that, you know, there's so many great scenes and you could just, visually, I could just watch that kind of stuff forever. They're such a striking group of people yeah. and, and, uh, and you can tell that they knew what they had there. And so as many chances as they get, let's arrange them on a staircase, <laughs> put them in, you know, put them in these really great, you know, complimentary colors and pose them and let's just go to town on showing our cast here and uh, yeah who can blame them you know they look great oh no i mean if you if you've got if you've got that kind of thing to draw on do it <laughs> yeah you talk about the cinematography uh francesco sanchez was the cinematographer mm. and uh, he he had a long and storied career um he as far as i can tell stopped making films in the late 70s mm. i wonder if that had anything to do with him deciding he did not want to be a part of spanish cinema once uh, yeah, it, it all be, be, it, it all yeah. pretty much became softcore porn yeah. Um, but his he he's he's the cinematographer who shot uh, Night of the Sorcerers, Blue Eyes, The Broken Doll, I Hate My Body, yeah. uh, Curse of the Devil for mm-hmm. for Nashi, Vengeance of the Zombies, several uh, spaghetti mm-hmm. westerns and Euro spy films in the mm-hmm. '60s. His career actually started with uh, documentary short films back in the '50s. Mm-hmm. So this is a man who'd been working behind the camera, uh, devising lighting schemes for decades Mm -hmm. before he shot this movie. And I think that that technical prowess shows itself very effectively in this movie. As much as I wish we had more information on people like this, when you look at his long list of credits, I mean, he did uh, Mummy's Revenge for uh, for Nashian, Devil's Mm -hmm. Possessed for Nashian, Exorcismo, Mm -hmm. and just this long... I mean, he did Night of the Seagulls for Mm -hmm. for Osorio, so he worked with Osorio several times. He's one of these guys who his name is just repeatedly on these movies that we just love going back to again and again and again. And so you have to think that, to a large degree, it's his eye (laughs) that we're seeing these pictures through. And this is the guy that... Yeah, you're right. This is the kind of guy that we need that people need to talk to because or needed to have interviewed and needed to have focused because and we we're guilty of it too i mean we so often focus on the actors and the directors you know but it's these people you know the that the the makeup artists the set decorators the cinematographers the script writers whose names pop up time and time again and all these that are connecting thread and all these films that we look at you think like god those are the people that would have the stories to to tell you know i know they could have told so and and like i say he was responsible for so many Mm -hmm. he was director of photography or cinematographer Mm -hmm. on so many of these classic spanish horror films yeah and you just think my goodness i mean what 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 was he what Mm. what what did he bring to the table that made him so that was he just incredibly Mm. dependable Mm. and then you look at a picture like this you look at the 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 saga of the draculas and you realize no no no. i mean he's really good at at his job you look at these images and you realize there's a lot of thought put into this Mm. stuff and you wonder how close the collaboration was with Klamowski when you start talking about the moving camera yeah, and, yeah. and that style that Klamowski always uses in all of his movies, regardless of his cinematographer. And so you wonder, well, you know, what was the conversation like between those two people trying to work out the lighting? Because that had to be difficult because it's one thing if you're lighting for a single camera setup. It's quite another if you're going to move the camera within the set. Mm-hmm. So. Now, is um, this makes me think too. Talking about the wanting to hear the stories of these people and more material on these people. Did I dream this, or is there not now a Spanish language book out now about Leon Komovsky that's just 
come out? Am I right? Oh, uh, there is a book that oh, was it about Klamowski? There is a Spanish language book that just came Who out. Who is it about? I, is it is it? Oh about? darn it! Now I can't remember because I I, I immediately was like, oh my goodness! I yes. was, and then realized, and, and then immediately asked, is there going to be an English language version? And they said, well, no, there's no uh, there's there's no there are no plans currently. And I immediately had to dismiss it from my. Mm. From my mind, or I was just going to start crying. You know, maybe, or was it Carlos Allred, or was it? I can't remember. Blast. I'll be honest. I I know, but the point being, any of our listeners out there that speak both Spanish and English, we want you to get these books and just read them all into an MP3 and send them to us. <laughs> and in, in English, in, and we will. Yes, Spanish will help us. And if you do that, we will mention your name on our podcast, and so as in <laughs> yeah, gratitude for. <laughs> you'll get as much payment as we get for doing this. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> <laughs> there are people out there who think we make millions apparently from this podcast, but uh, we would. They are wrong. Them. They are wrong. They are so stinking wrong. <laughs> oh my goodness! I just had a curiosity. Did we? Did we? I mean, uh, not not to tutor our horns, but when we did the uh, when we did the commentary for the Blu-ray for Night of the Seagulls, did we talk a fair amount about his cinematography? Because he, his cinematography on Night of the Seagulls is phenomenal. Yeah, yeah. Good question. I don't know. I can't good remember. Answer. It's been, we've yeah. slept a little since we did that commentary track. Yeah. <laughs> Folks, Lord, Lord knows we're not going to listen back to it again. So I'm not listening, so, so I'm you not can listening listen to it. Y'all I listened listen to it during yeah. the editing process. I listened to that commentary to, yeah. track so many fucking times. <laughs> People, if you've listened to our commentary on Night of the Seagulls, did we talk about the cinematographer much? Yeah. Because... I don't. I don't know. Now, in the heat of things, I don't remember if we found out if we if I was yeah. able to find information about the man, and now I don't remember what it is. So, oh my goodness, that's so sad. Oh. The Dracula Saga is the story of a cursed family. My own family. So, <clears throat> once again, we've got an interesting. Uh, kind of variation on vampires and and what they mean what they symbolize vampire is a creature that like your all the best classic monsters can be used for to represent many different things and uh in klamowski's films you know we had strange loves of the vampire is 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 very much a a romantic take on on the the vampire yeah it's almost like a fairy tale kind of love story within a vampire context the vampires night orgy it's treated more as uh, almost more like a plague you know in this village right here, to me, I think what what they're seen as is kind of a um, metaphor for a the dying aristocracy, for the the de- degradation, the inbreeding of European monarchy. Very much so, yeah. And uh, and it's done very effectively. Uh, one of the things they do interesting with makeup in this is there's only a couple of scenes where the vampires look kind of the classic with the long fangs, like we're right. used to seeing them. And uh, there's most of the times their teeth almost look. Almost like I hate to say it, almost like British teeth. You know, they're almost kind of, kind of like you know what I mean. When there's some of the scenes where they're sitting around the dinner table and they're kind of all smiling, and Brett is noticing the oddity of their that they've got fangs, but they're almost more like you can even see when see like looks like there's some decay in the, on the teeth. You know, it's very yeah, interesting that yeah. the way to do it. But I think again, I think it's trying to show just that they're you know this this fading away. They're kind of you know deteriorating as the aristocracy is, and so that's just another. Uh, I think that's kind of the point we. It's not the first time that, you know, vampires have been shown in that way as far as being a, a lineage that's trying to carry on. Uh, one of the ones that comes to mind is, is uh, Blood for Dracula, other also known as Andy Warhol's Dracula. But, of course, that's much more of a satiric version of the story, whereas this one is done much more serious. But it's that same kind of idea, you know, of this uh, rich European kind of family whose life is lifestyle and time is, is, is fading away. And they're trying to desperately find some way to 
continue to carry on that line, even though they're becoming desiccated and weaker. Well, let's not forget that that is something else that could very easily be pulled from Bram Stoker's oh, sure. novel. Yeah. yeah. Uh, although uh, it is it is also something very clear that this that, that this movie is not doing. Yes, it's it mm. kind of is mm. uh, straight straight down the line uh, something that comes mm. from Stoker's novel, mm. where you once again have the mm. the ancient aristocracy trying to find a new way to live mm. by yeah. bleeding off the, yeah. the the younger races, the yeah. younger people, the younger country essentially mm. move from the old country to mm. a newer land and and start to absorb the energy from it and uh, but of course also remember that one that's that is definitely one way to read Stoker's novel but something this movie doesn't play with is the is the more overt thing that kind of inspires that and is really much more of a uh, a direct undercurrent in the novel which is the whole idea of the uh, the kind of horde of mm. of diseased Eastern Europeans invading, mm-hmm. you know the yeah. the uh, the the new more pristine world mm-hmm. of modern mm-hmm. London, right. which yeah. uh, which this movie does not play with because yeah. this is very much uh, very much takes a, a small bit of reversal in that the old aristocracy that's dying out mm-hmm. had this one little branch of it that yeah. went to those new lands mm-hmm. is still vital and alive and is therefore bringing that vitality and life yeah, right. in the form of a a mm-hmm. child soon yeah. to be born back to this desiccated dying place yeah. and they all see this as a lifeline yeah to resurrect the mm-hmm. old world the old place the old family line and so uh, i think that it's once again credit to the to the writer of this yeah. to take that idea and to put a twist on it a slight mm-hmm. spin that creates a, a kind of a sister or, or sister or brother mm-hmm. uh, yeah. storyline that yeah. can match very easily up against the one that Stoker built mm-hmm. himself. Yeah, you know, and we, we're we're kind of ending our synopsis of the story here, you know, so because we didn't want to spoil it. Um, I'll just say for people who've heard what they've who what they've heard so far, are thinking like, well, this sounds like a, a real kind of slow, uneventful sort of film. We'll just say the last third of the film. Is not subtle at all. So if you so if you're waiting for yes. things to take off, when you get to the last act, believe me, they start to take off. So yeah, yeah. And I would say I don't, I don't find this movie uh, dull or boring. No, I don't either. I don't either. So don't, but it is kind of yeah. a slow. I mean, it does yeah. sort of play. Yeah. It, yeah, hold back. It's you know where it's going. It yeah. definitely it's very unpredictable, which I like. You don't know where the story's going, and I, I think that's very cool. You know, I think that it very interestingly. It leads you down a certain uh, way of thinking about uh, what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. It leads you down a certain pathway that is kind of a standard narrative for this kind of story. Mm-hmm. And then kind of jumps to one side and then jumps to the other side mm-hmm. uh, without yeah. really much warning. No, no, exactly. And, uh, That's what I mean. It's like know, we, we, see, just... we see the passage of time. <laughs> yeah. you know, to, yeah. to, to be clear, we see the passage of time in the final half hour of this film played out before us mm-hmm. as Berta's pregnancy reaches mm-hmm. uh, its ninth month. And you start yeah. to realize that we're getting closer to mm-hmm. this child being born. And therefore, the uh, the uh, specific reasons for the excitement for this child being born have mm-hmm. to actually be made very clear. Yeah. And I think that that's uh, that's something well worth seeing. I think this movie mm-hmm. has a wonderful payoff, and there are lots of neat little, there are lots mm-hmm. of little ideas, not, mm-hmm. lots of ni- nice threads within mm-hmm. the structure of it that are then made extraordinarily clear and and much. Uh, but let's just say, bring a big smile to my face <laughs> once they are revealed. Yeah. They're structured well. And those those surprises are well uh, are well thought out, and they uh, they make the they make the film uh, a little bit better than it really probably had to be to tell this kind of a story. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. It's intelligent. It's well acted. Uh, 
I'm never going to say this is like my favorite Spanish horror film of mm-hmm. all time. I mm-hmm. think it's quite good. Mm-hmm. It's, uh, I, th- I think, a, a semi-insulting way to put it is to say it's a thinker. <laughs> you got to think about it a little bit. And that's not to say that yeah. I'm not trying to damn it with faint praise. I'm just saying yeah. that it is better the more you think about it. Mm-hmm. And luckily mm-hmm. there's enough within the, the, mm-hmm. the filmmaking and enough within the, narr- the narrative itself to... Um, cause you to start to think about it. It's something that mm-hmm. sticks, at least for me anyway, mm-hmm. it's stuck, it stuck with me mm-hmm. uh, for several days to the point where I was rolling things over my head mm-hmm. again so that my second pass through the movie, all of these things that I thought about, there were some things that I thought about that became more clear on a second viewing because I now am reminded of what the ending tells me. Mm-hmm. But there are also things that just had not occurred to me on the first pass through the yeah. film in, the, in, in mm-hmm. 10 years' time. Mm-hmm. So this is, this is a thinker. <laughs> the more you watch this yeah. film, the more, the more impressed you will probably be by mm-hmm. it. Well, I definitely, having now just seen it the two times in preparation for this, I definitely liked it more the second time than did the first time. I, I, I think maybe at this point, I probably still don't like it quite as much as you, but I like it. Okay. I mean, I gave it, and this was tough, because I was hovering between a seven and a six. I gave it a six, but it's a very respectful six. You know, it's a very appreciative six. You Understood. know, I think overall it's very well made. It has a few little clunks here and there, you know, that don't. But I think just because... At this point, I still don't necessarily see it as a film that I might pull just to get my Spanish horror fix, you know, or my Euro horror kind of fix, you know, yeah, this kind of thing. Yeah. I've certainly, though, if it comes out in another form, if it comes out on Blu-ray or something, I'll happily dive into it again, and I'm yeah. sure I'll enjoy it because I do enjoy the film. It's probably one. I would one I would definitely say if we're into European horror, I would definitely watch it. It's not a film that I would put in the necessarily upper third or the kind of films that I think would maybe. Um, I don't think it would be a good introduction. Exactly, exactly. I would let people make sure somebody's really kind of getting into that world and really starting to appreciate that before I'd show it to them. But, but I do, uh, you know, think it's definitely a worthwhile film for sure. Yeah, you're right. I, I, I basically end up giving this. Uh, I went from on my my initial viewing about a six to really mm. feeling it's about a seven mm. because it's a it's it's a film that pays off the the, the longer you live with it. Yeah, and, so and I, I can see that. Yeah. A, it's it's a it's a thinker and a grower. Yeah, and I do really and I do really <laughs> like all the odd little ways it plays with vampire mythology and and new new ways of showing uh, old ideas. You know, new ways of, of depicting them. So it's I appreciate those little things that drops in there that are that are, you know several points on the film where I was thinking okay. I've not seen that before, you know. That's nice. Well, plus, I mean, it, it's once again, it's one of those wonderful things where you have a, a film that has the opportunity to, to uh, shoot on locations that yeah. are just they just automatically add yeah. a certain level of oh, yeah. of splendor and mm-hmm. uh, beauty mm-hmm. that aren't necessarily going to be uh, you're not going to be capable of it on, mm-hmm. on on the budgets these films are made on and yet you know all you have to do is find these locations and get the permission to shoot on them and you've suddenly got a certain level of production value that you're just not getting in other ways yeah. and so uh, this movie pays off in uh, some really great ways uh, do encourage people to see it like I say I'm sure it's out there on YouTube somewhere but you can definitely rent it on uh, Amazon Prime if you don't have access to the mm-hmm. out of print DVD we do both recommend seeing this film, but uh, yeah. you know, it, it's I wouldn't call it my my go to Spanish horror film mm. either. Um, but at the same time, once mm. you become an aficionado, this is one to slide mm. into the mix. Yeah, definitely, yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll come back and we'll let you know what Troy and I'll be doing on the not only this pat not only on this podcast feed, but over on the Bloody Pit as well. Just how drunk are we gonna get? 
Welcome to Good Beer, Bad Movie Night, where each month we drink finely crafted brews while watching terrible films in order to see just how drunk you have to get to enjoy them. So tune in and join Troy. Killboy Kreitz. <laughs> oh, that was pretty good. Thank you. <laughs> Dave. I have the weirdest boner. And Pete. IPAs are ales, meaning they are bottom fermented. Excuse me, they are top fermented. I that up. <laughs> Try that again. As we drag Kathleen. Hear me. Kicking and screaming through an alcohol-fueled podcast dedicated to movies of questionable quality and the frosty adult beverages that help make them tolerable. Good beer, bad movie night. Clearly, it's the beer's fault. The ghosts are moving tonight, restless, hungry. All right, fellas, here's your story. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. And we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Wait, Captain. I have found evidence of intelligent beings on this planet. Look to the skies. It's the B-Movie Cookbook. Menus inspired by 15 of your favorite B-movies from the 1950s. With teenage werewolves, blobs, and enough cheese for everyone. When we return to our planet, the High Court may well sentence you to torture. But until then, we've got Ed Wood and Vincent Price. There'll be food and drink and ghosts, and perhaps even a few murders. You're all invited. So impress your friends with dinner and a movie with the B-Movie Cookbook. We've got you covered. Get your copy today at bmoviecookbook.com. That's bmoviecookbook.com. Let me see that book. I am interested to see what sways your mind so heavily. Sure thing. Just visit bmoviecookbook.com. I'd like to thank you very much for tuning in and listening to us talk about another Leon Klamowski film. There was a period of time during this podcast that uh, we did a we did so many Leon Klamowski films <laughs> almost in a row that I think that we felt that it would be it had become the Klamowski cast. Yeah, it really, yeah. <laughs> it really was that way for yeah, a while. So it, it felt good. Yeah. to kind of get back to mm, uh, the stylistic yeah. choices of Mr. Klamowski and to uh, mm. hear him uh, have some uh, musical choices that didn't rub the wrong the rub, mm-hmm. rub the film the wrong mm-hmm. way. Let's put it that mm-hmm. way. Once again, if you want to check this film out, it is available for rent on Amazon Prime. It is available. God, I. I I don't want to tell you this, but it's lurking out there on YouTube. I can smell it. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> the Dracula Saga or Saga of the Draculas, seek it out. Please ignore some of those strange, strange titlings that we discovered by death, looking death, them up. Death, on, yeah, death, death, death is just not a. What, 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 who thought that was a good idea? Who in the name of God thought that was anyway? Folks, thank you once again for tuning in. We'd just like to tell you that uh, next month. Troy and I are going to be returning to the Bloody Pit podcast, the sister podcast to the Nashi cast here, for uh, the continuation of our 1940s Universal Horror series. We are getting up to the 1941 film The Black Cat. Now, Mm -hmm. as we must always caution people when we talk about Universal Horror and that title, this is not the classic 30s film uh, that... uh, Hmm. starred Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi and is easily one of my favorite movies of all time. This, yeah. this is a different yeah. movie entirely. Yes. Yes. Although Bela Lugosi does pop up in it. That's right, he does. Yeah. He has a hmm. he has a small and thankless role. <laughs> 
Get used to it, Bela. <laughs> yes, uh, sad to say. Mm-hmm. So, uh, over on the Bloody Pit next month, Troy and I talking about the 1941 film from Universal, The Black Cat. Mm-hmm. The month following that, we are going to be right back here on the Nashy Cast feed with, and I know this is going to shock a lot <laughs> of you. Hold on to your hats. A Paul Nashy film. Yes, yes. We do have access mm-hmm. to a, another unseen, mm-hmm. hard-to-come-by Paul Nashy film. Every now and then they do pop up like thrown cats and make us jump. If <laughs> <laughs> they do make us jump. This yes, because it's is exciting. Sure. Yes, and it is just as unexpected as a thrown cat <laughs> yes, thrown into frame from off-center. Yes, yeah. so there it is. Mm-hmm. Oh, my God. We are on uh, two months from now. We will be talking about uh, the 1975 film, The Passengers. Yeah. Uh, I would try to pronounce the Spanish title, but we all know I would screw it up. No, it would just be... Bad it's, way to sign off. Don't want to leave them with that taste in their mouth. <laughs> the good news. The good news is that it it, it does star uh, Aurora Batista, who we last saw as a murderous middle aged woman in A Candle for the Devil, mm-hmm. and uh, Paul Nashie. Mm-hmm. So we're gonna see it. The yeah. bad news is, I fear it's a comedy. Yes, it, and and we of course have no idea whether Paul Nashie is a major role or if he's in it for five minutes. I mean, we just do. We, we're well, kind of going uh, into blind territory. We're hoping I, that this is a major role. I've read that he has many costume changes, so I suspect. Oh, well, that is okay. You're right. I suspect he has to be in the film for the long haul and not just as a mm-hmm. like a cameo or something. Although something that like sounds that. uncomfortably close to Operation Mantis, which is not a <laughs> memory we necessarily Ooh, want to have. So yeah, yeah, yeah comedies are always mm-hmm. tough territory for us uh, Spanish comedies rather but uh, hey you know we are very excited about having anything new with Paul Nashi that is we've not covered on the show that's a rare occurrence and we're very happy to uh, been able to do this uh, oh, especially one from the 70s yes absolutely I mean uh, that's the you know the, the, the prime the, time well it's 70 you're right 75 that was the fertile period there for so with any, with any luck, uh, in two months we'll be back here with a, a neat little happy surprise of a, oh. of a, of a Spanish possible comedy that uh, we can actually enjoy and not kind of groan and, and, be, puz- and be puzzled <laughs> yeah. over, the, over the supposedly amusing antics on screen. Um, thank goodness the fan subbing community is out there yes, making these you. things available to us in, the, in, a, in, a, in a way that we can actually comprehend. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, of course, next month, join us over on The Bloody Pit for a look at the 1941 film The Black Cat. Thank you for listening. Thank you for any any uh, nice, kind words that you can say about us. Remember, that if you want to contact this show, it's nashycast at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you. There's also a Facebook page you can contact and leave messages for us there. Thank you very much. Uh, Troy, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's hot in Tennessee. It is. It it's is, absolutely. very hot in Tennessee, but it's always good to be here with you people. That's right. You make us feel <laughs> cool. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that had to be the cheesiest thing. I could I, that, wow, that was, man. <laughs> Pretty bad, isn't it? I was trying to find a way to like be really you know, nice to the listeners and let them know how much we appreciate them. And, and it, Did it come off bad? <laughs> was it terrible? Instead, we just immediately lost lost several. I think, <laughs> several I think the people feed, Dropped off the feed there, yeah, unsubscribing as we yeah, speak. As we speak. Well, folks, I'm sorry. <sighs> write me at nashycast at gmail.com and tell me how you, uh, you've uh, you've turned away from us now. That's right. I am Rod Barnett. I'm Troy Gwynn. See you later. <laughs>